welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. Got a lot of things to talk about. I'm going to give you a brief summary of what I took away from the ASCO annual meeting. You don't want to miss that. I'm going to be joined via Zoom by Audrey Tran to do questions from a medical student. And I have a very interesting discussion with Dr. Jane Zhu about private equity and its emerging role in buying up medical practices. You won't want to miss this discussion, so stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. But first... Just as I go to record this podcast, I discovered the randomized control trial of hydroxychloroquine as post-exposure prophylaxis is out. This is a laudable effort by the good folks from Minnesota. Long story short, the trial failed to show an improvement in the primary endpoint, which is symptoms consistent with COVID-19 or confirmed COVID-19 among persons who had exposure to somebody with SARS-CoV-2. So, This is a negative study for the pre-exposure prophylaxis of hydroxychloroquine, which probably has particular relevance for the fact that this is, in fact, the use that a noted politician uh, took this medication for. What do I think is noteworthy here? Of course, you know, people are going to be quibbling with the power calculation because they had postulated a 10% rate of the endpoint and that they would have a 50% relative risk reduction, which is frankly rather large, which is a rather large reduction. And uh, they didn't get there. And then many people say, but there was a numerical difference between the arms. Yeah, but, you know, it uh, also could have been a bit of bias. So, you know, I just tweeted out one thing that I thought was really interesting. This is a trial where the endpoint, for a bunch of reasons, in part because they didn't have great funding and the NIH didn't fund this study, was confirmed COVID-19 based on PCR or symptoms compatible with COVID-19. That's a problematic endpoint, I must admit, because symptoms compatible with COVID-19 I've talked to a bunch of people over the last few weeks, and people are crying wolf a little bit. I think I have a bit of a scratchy throat. I think I am having fevers. I think I feel sick. And just feeling that way doesn't necessarily mean you have COVID-19. Of course, Adam Sifu loves to joke that people want to be tested for antibodies left, right, and center because they were sick last November, and they just want to make sure they didn't already have COVID-19. Well, they probably didn't. So, you know, here, the primary endpoint was just, you know, 20 out of 100 events was laboratory-confirmed. SARS-CoV-2, and the rest were the symptoms compatible. Well, 
That troubles me a little bit because it turns out hydroxychloroquine has more side effects than the sugar pill. It has more nausea, more upset stomach, um, more irritability, more dizziness. You know, these are mild increases in side effects, but it does have more side effects. And it turns out when you actually directly ask people who participated in this study, what do you think you got? If you got hydroxychloroquine, a 46% guessed right, and 10% thought they got placebo. If you got placebo, 36% guessed right, and only 17% guessed hydroxychloroquine, and the rest were unsure. So whether you got placebo or whether you got hydroxychloroquine, there were slightly more people who could figure out what they got than people who couldn't figure it out. So what does that mean? So if you are a big believer that this is a medication that's going to help, and even though it's a quote-unquote blinded placebo-controlled trial, you can sniff out the fact that you're getting the active treatment, um, your will to believe may affect your self-reporting of the symptoms, the coronavirus symptoms. You may think you get something and thus be less likely to declare yourself having symptoms consistent or compatible with COVID-19. This is... I guess, a classic example of sort of a bias-susceptible endpoint. It's an endpoint that requires, you know, your knowledge and um, uh, subjective uh, view and reporting of your symptoms, which may be influenced by your belief in what you have gotten, your faith in whether or not that works. And I can think of a number of ways in which this kind of study design could be improved going forward. So one way it could be improved is, um, you know, basically in the primary endpoint, anyone who feels any symptoms at all can phone a number and you'll shoot in there and you'll swab them and you will document uh, SARS-CoV-2. And in fact, maybe if they declare symptoms, you go three days in a row and swab them um, just in case you're catching them really early in the disease course and, you know, you don't want to miss a, a real positive. Um, so that's a possible endpoint to actually provide that service. And that way we can actually adjudicate whether or not they have the virus or not. Um, second thing I think you could do is you could even just kind of randomly or blindly ascertain the endpoint in some subset of the people in each arm or in all the people in each arm. At day 14, you swab everyone. At day 18, and that way you might be able to even document a change in asymptomatic individuals who some people postulate are spreading the virus. So that's another possibility. Um, and then the third possibility I see um, where you can actually keep the um, you can keep the design, you can keep that self-reported aspect of things, um, it would be to use an active placebo, a medication uh, with just a touch of something in it, uh, so that it might mimic some of the side effects, a little uh, wisp of, you know, GI distress or something like that. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, really the relevance for this also extends broadly to, um, to some of the discussion we've had on psychiatric uh, trials, particularly SSRIs. So that's all just food for thought. I think it's a good and important study. They probably didn't do this, not because they didn't know these things, but because um, my understanding is it was done on a shoestring budget. It is a negative study, and I think people who want to spin it otherwise are mistaken. It's a negative study. Um, you know, uh, the pretest probability this drug does anything is infinitesimally low. Um, you need uh, a really good positive study to move away from that probability. That's always been my view of the topic. Um, and again, you know, as we discussed with Willie Jalad uh, in a really good discussion, uh, the fact that this has been so politicized and so discussed in the media uh, is the stuff you could write a book about. Um, and in fact, I guess that uh, raises the fascinating chapter of the book called Surgisphere. Um, the, the wonderful papers by Surgisphere, which right now have two expression of concerns. Well, I hope to revisit that on this podcast on a future date when I know more exactly what happened with those two papers. But for the time being, we're post-ASCO, and it's my obligation to comment about all of the studies. So let's turn to ASCO, the ASCO plenary session. 
Well, well, well. Before I actually jump in on some of the abstracts, I just got to make a little point. These websites that go out there and say, you know, the top 10 people who influence the meeting, um, they're a problem. And they're a problem because um, they lead to behavior among oncologists that is so embarrassing. Um, It pains me to witness uh, as they actively compete to be ranked highly according to this super useless and futile and absolutely worthless metric of being a quote-unquote influencer. You see, um, I, I don't, first of all, I don't even know if the computer algorithm is actually honest. I mean, in fact, for all we know, it could be a completely dishonest algorithm. There's no one actually checking it um, that I'm aware of. There's no external review of it. Um, but even if it were true, the number of times somebody tweets the number of times their name is mentioned in a tweet, uh, that is not actually a measure of their influence upon how people think about the content. It just means they're talking loudly or people are talking about them. But if you say the same thing that you heard, you're not influencing anything. You're just repeating something. To influence something, you have to have an original thought. You have to take your original thought and apply it to people who don't share that thought. And then you have to cajole and move and sway the opinion of many people. And measuring this, it turns out, just can't be done in an automated fashion. It's probably incredibly more complicated to do than that. And nobody really wants to do that. They just want to play silly games where they get a ranking score. And I think it's bad in a number of ways. The simplest way it's bad is... One of the things this algorithm is looking for is the number of times your name is at and then whatever your handle is, and you start to see people tweet uh, at themselves. They put at their own handle in the tweet that they're sending. And when you see behavior like that, you know they're just jockeying for that position on that rank list. And that, to me, is really, really sad. Anyway, I don't want to belabor this point. I am on a couple of um, chats Let's say, and I'm not going to tell you where they are, but people send me things on a daily basis of sort of silly things they read, supposed um, experts say. And I swear, some days I'm like, oh my God, it's just so painful to, to see these kind of embarrassing things people are actually actually doing. And they think nobody's noticing, but um, they, in fact, somebody is noticing because that person is noticing and forwarding it to me on an hourly basis. And it's just one after the other. I'm like, oh boy, it's very clear what's going on. All right. Now, on that positive note, let's go to the ASCO abstracts. First, Sarah Cannon Research Institute. It's really interesting that so many discussions are from Sarah Cannon. wonder why that happened. Must be the true meritocracy we live in, that Sarah Cannon obviously meritocratically is providing the discussions for all the lectures. Probably couldn't have anything to do with the fact the president's from Sarah Cannon. That would be a bit perhaps nepotistic. But anyway, put that aside. Number one. Javelin 100, Avelumab versus BSC versus BSC alone after platinum-based first-line chemotherapy. So, you know, let's just say what's going on here. This is just a classic example, bladder cancer. We often go to a platinum doublet to start in metastatic or or unresectable bladder cancer. Um, Upon progression, um, you know, we're reaching for a PD-1 antibody such as pembrolizumab, um, for which we have well-done randomized trials that shows a survival benefit. The question, of course, is... 
you know, if you're Pfizer, how do you get people to use more Avalumab since they haven't heard about that? Because Avalumab is like not exactly uh, the new kid on the block when it comes to PD-1 antibodies. They're a little bit late to the party. Um, what, what was the first thing they got? The, was it the Merkel cell approval? Well, that's, uh, that's not going to put food on the table when you're trying to get market share in the PD-1 business, okay? Merkel cell's not going to cut it. Um, you're going to have to go after something big. Uh, urothelial cancer, it's not the biggest, but, you know, perhaps it's better than Merkel in terms of patient volume. And patient volume, unfortunately, has to do with revenue, which is unfortunately one of the great considerations in how people are picking and choosing trial design. Anyway, this study, really simply, you're going to get some induction chemotherapy. Um, you are going to be randomized to getting uh, switch maintenance, Avalumab, right away. Or in the control arm, you should get the standard of care, which is as good induction therapy as you can get, followed by as close and diligent observation as you would get, followed by PD-1 antibody upon progression. And the only relevant question is the following. If you did the first strategy and get a truckload of Avalumab, do you have a better overall survival and better health-related quality of life over the duration of your cancer journey than if you get the second strategy where you get a good induction treatment, you're watched very closely, and then you get pembrolizumab if and when you progress. Uh, more like when you progress, because unfortunately it's an incurable condition. Um, do you improve survival and health-related quality of life in the first scenario than the second scenario? And when you do improve those two outcomes in the first scenario, what's the dollar per quality adjusted life years? Is this cost-effective, or unfortunately is Avalumab price so high that it's not cost-effective? Well, this study kind of sought to do that. It kind of sought to do that. It, it, it kind of probably shirked things in a few ways. One, um, you know, you can enroll in the study after four to six cycles of CISGEM. Um, my guess is that one of the ways in which there may be a bias here is that if you've got somebody who you've given four cycles of platinum gemcitabine, you've had good tumor reduction, but they're feeling good and tolerating it well, um, you might push a little bit harder in real clinical practice than if you were being encouraged encouraged and incentivized to enroll in Javelin Bladder 100. You might not push as hard. And so you might get here, when we get more data, there might be some potential undertreatment in the in the beginning. There might be a lot of people with, say, four cycles of CISGEM, which would be a bit unusual in this group of people who have, even in the control arm, rather good overall survival, suggesting that this is, in fact, a, you know, elite selected subset of all the average people with bladder cancer who probably aren't going to do quite as well. You know, this is a clinical trial. They tend to get the elites. Um, the next thing that's troublesome is the PFS. You know, I remember looking at this curve, and here I'm going to do it from memory because I don't have you know, papers for all these trials. Um, I looked at that PSF curve and it is a, it is a roller coaster, that first PFS um, in the control arm. It's just f almost at like the first or second time interval. It just plummets and you have a massive progression and a huge number of people who progress almost right away in this study. Um, and in fact, let's see what the median progression free survival was. Unfortunately, I just read the abstract and it does not actually say the median PFS in the control arm. So anyway, I have to just go by my memory, which was, it was, it was a precipitous fall. Let me look at the slides. Oh yeah, here it is. The median PFS in the control arm is two months. Okay, the median overall survival in the control arm is still nonetheless 14.3 um, months. So between two months and 14.3 months is a year. And in that year, I think something's gonna have to happen to these patients. And what's gonna have to happen is they're gonna have to get PD-1 antibody, because that is the standard of care in the second line. And in fact, I think that the rate at which they got this, which is lower than what I would anticipate, um, let me pull it up, it is in fact... 
only 43% of people who progress on best supportive care get a subsequent PD-1 antibody. 34% get a different drug. Well, a different drug would not be acceptable standard of care, and 30% are going to discontinue with no subsequent therapy. This is not good. This is a poor rate of appropriate post-protocol care. And that speaks volumes. That basically poisoned your entire OS. Um, You're not giving your control arm appropriate standard of care when they progress, and therefore your overall survival is utterly unreliable, and it can't be used to draw conclusions. You're not actually answering the question that you ought to answer for the U.S. audience, which is, is the routine use of Avelumab as switch maintenance better for my patients than watching them really diligently, as I obviously would in my clinical practice, and giving them a PD-1 antibody like pembrolizumab when and if they progress? That's the real clinical question. Is their global overall survival and health-related quality of life better with pushing all this PD-1 early or waiting to give it? And they don't answer that because they deprive the control arm of appropriate standard care therapy. They probably do that because they're probably running in places around the world where it is due to financial hardship and the uh, horrendous price of medications, um, not feasible to provide this drug in second line therapy. And that is lamentable, but they probably know that. And that's in part, probably one of the major drivers of global clinical trials. And if you want to learn more about that, I would recommend listening to chapter 11 of Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer. The other thing about this trial that really, really annoyed me is this audacity. Let me pull it up. After first-line chemotherapy, only 25 to 55% of patients receive second-line treatment. It says that in the background, references 7 through 12. Well, you know what? Um, You can't compare rates of receipt of second-line therapy in average community practices um, or even perhaps prior studies with current studies. You're running a current study where you're really getting the fittest of the fit patients and you're enrolling them on a study and you can't really compare them against uh, average clinical practice patients. They're not. The percentages here should be way, way higher because you are documenting that at least 50% of people are progressing by two months and 50% of people are living 14.3 months. There's a huge space to be giving appropriate second line therapy. So my guess is that... um, That's the key. That's the key shortcoming. And that's why Javelin Bladder 100 might uh, help of a Lumab's market share, but it probably shouldn't. Probably shouldn't. Probably shouldn't. Let's go to the next one. Oh, side note, a lot of love for the discussant, but um, did the discussant actually say in that presentation that the discussant served on the DSMB of the trial itself? Because that would kind of not be a good discussant. You got to get somebody who didn't participate in the study and doesn't have a relationship with the company. Come on, ASCO. All right, next study. Oh, this is a great study. Oh, finally, a good one. ECOG Akron E2108. Uh, This is a classic. You know, do women who have metastatic cancer when the horse has left the barn, do they benefit from aggressive local regional therapy? And, you know, I would say... It, um, it wasn't exactly a hypothesis I thought was very plausible. Uh, you know, to my knowledge, there has only been one tumor to date where removal of the primary in the setting of metastatic burden actually improves outcomes. And that, of course, is nephrectomy. Um, but even that result was put on its head with Carmena, which is the only study that was done in the era of VEGF TKIs. So even that one little thing I had to hang my hat on it changed. And I guess I, I, I think I'm actually literally um, talking about stuff that appears in the book Malignant, because I think that's literally what I say in the book Malignant. Um, Of course, we had a bunch of retrospective observational studies show that women who did get 
aggressive local regional care like radiation and surgery while they had metastatic breast cancer. They live longer than women who don't, even if you would do multivariate analysis, even if your propensity score adjusts, this relationship persists. Um, and it's a, it's a good size benefit in observational studies. Um, of course, we had the Tata Memorial Group paper that I think appeared in Lancet Oncology. Um, and that was a randomized control trial that absolutely failed to find a benefit. And here are the good investors in ECOG, Akron, they go in there and they run the right clinical study, which is a randomized control trial stage four patients with invasive breast cancer undergoing local regional therapy or just the best available therapy for metastatic disease or local regional therapy plus the best available therapy. And um, they enroll nearly 400 patients, which makes this, I believe, the largest randomized trial to date on this topic. And they find hazard ratio 1.09, confidence interval 0.8 to 1.49, absolutely no difference in overall survival, and health-related quality of life that was actually significantly worse if you got local regional therapy. So I would hope that this trial is, in fact, the last nail in the coffin for this aggressive local therapy approach for women with metastatic breast cancer. It's just a great example of something called confounding by indication, um, which means that when you look in a retrospective data set, there's going to be a fundamental confounding variable that you are going to have a difficult time of adjusting for, which is that surgeons and radiation therapists are not deploying this intervention um, in two women equally who are in the same situation. They're probably preferentially doing local regional therapy in people who are are healthier, fitter, good performance status, look like they are going to have a better treatment course because that's the kind of person you want to invest in, the more aggressive approach. They're fitter. They can take the aggressive approach. Um, and they're not going to be doing it um, in anyone with an equal probability, particularly not the person with metastatic breast cancer who may be um, functionally limited from that cancer. And as a result, even if you have access to a wealth of sort of um, covariates that you can adjust for, you might not have access to a variable that really captures the doctor's eyeball test, the doctor's kind of gut feeling about whether or not somebody's going to do well or not whether or not they could push hard on therapy. And that's a fundamental bias that will always haunt oncology because our treatments cut deep and they cut hard and it cuts in a way that other fields don't. And so I think confounding by indication is probably the worst problem in our field. I happen to have some data that I'm not privy to share that will kind of bolster that, but that is embargoed. Coming soon. All right. So just a great study. Not too many complaints about that one. What's the next one? Uh, carfilzomib, revlimid, and dexamethasone, KRD versus bortezomib, revlimid, and dexamethasone. This is the endurance, the ECOG phase three randomized control trial by Shaji Kumar. You know, before we even start on this trial, if I were to actually sit back and tell you what you want to see in this trial, it's going to, it's going to be a little provocative. Let me tell you that. So we already live in a world where VRD is the routine standard of care for people who are transplant ineligible or transplant eligible um, with different numbers of cycles and the decision to take to transplant, you know, we can we can discuss all those side points. Um, carfilzomib is just a known uh, drug that's useful in the second line or beyond of therapy um, based on the paper by Keith Stewart and colleagues. Um, and, and there has long been the question of which is in fact the better proteasome inhibitor, which is the one you should give routine and upfront. And they have different side effects, of course, um, bortezomib with its neuropathy, which can be mitigated, of course, if you give it sub-Q weekly, um, carfilzomib with its cardiotoxicity, which is a difficult um, beast to tame and uh, and, uh, and and does occur uh, with some frequency, different frequencies and different data sets and at different doses of carfilzomib. Um, and if you really wanted to ask 
the right question. What is the right question? The real right question is whether or not the control arm, which is VRD, initial therapy, followed by salvage therapies that you would think reasonable, such as DARA-RD or KRD or XRD or, um, or DARA-POM-DEX, um, you know, uh, if, if that strategy the control arm strategy, that's what we're doing now for our patients with multiple myeloma, giving them triplet therapy um, with auto transplant in the front line, often with maintenance Revlimid for at least two years, asterisk there, we're going to learn more about that, um, followed by, you know, different triplet salvage regimens based on the many, many different studies that all use the same straw man comparator, uh, whipping on RD. Okay, so that's the current standard of care. In the experimental arm, you want to give people KRD up front. That's the question. Should you move it all the way up front? And then you want to give them everything else the same on the back end. So after they progress on KRD, maybe they have a shot at DARA or DARA-containing triplets. And then maybe they have a shot um, at VRD later. And then the real question is actually a question that's going to take a while to answer, which is, is the routine upfront administration of carfilzomib, revlimid, and dex, does that improve overall survival or health-related quality of life over a long period of time, over not just the first regimen, but the second and the third regimen, over VRD and then all the other subsequent regimens. So that's the real fundamental question in myeloma. Now, one thing that uh, that is baked into that is if KRD improves progression-free survival over VRD, I think that is prerequisite to start to ask those questions of whether or not that longer initial PFS will translate into longer OS and longer global health-related quality of life. That's a prerequisite. But if, for some bizarre reason, KRD does not even improve PFS, if it's incapable of even improving that, then I think the likelihood that it would improve long-term OS and the likelihood it would improve some global quality of life score, that would be infinitesimally low. And so this study... I think it's an interesting study because a lot of people would have interpreted that if there was a PFS benefit, it means you ought to use KRD. I think there's room for debate there. And even if there were a PFS difference, you're not asking the right question, which is, does it translate to an OS difference? And does it translate into a global health-related quality of life difference, at least across the first one and two ROMs? Because potentially... You might get a bigger PFS benefit off the front, but then your next triplet regimen may have a shorter PFS, um, and your OS may actually be not very different. Your third regimen may be a little bit shorter, um, and your health-related quality of life may deteriorate more rapidly had you gotten the KRD up front, and had you paced yourself with VRD, and then DARA-RD, and then DARA-POM-DEX or something like that, you might have actually been able to have maybe more medium-sized PFSs, but strung that together to the same OS, and health-related quality of life might actually have been better, hypothetically, even were you to have a PFS benefit? You see, this is kind of a tricky concept that I don't think a lot of people will appreciate, but I'm just going to say it anyway because it's the right concept. It's philosophically the right idea. It'll take you a while to agree with me, but someday you will. Someday you will. Anyway, baked into that is the idea that CRD has to have a PFS benefit to at least have a reasonable probability that this entire story could kind of hang together. I think many people have converted that into if there's a PFS benefit, that's a win. Um, and I think what this trial shows rather conclusively is that there is no PFS benefit. Ergo, it is unlikely that KRD upfront, a more costly regimen, um, is able to translate into the things we really care about. And then I guess I would say the other thing that came up was, you know, some people thought that, well, it's unfair study because some people can be getting transplant and that will make VRD look better. Well, the rates of transplantation were kind of equal between both arms. I think the other thing that people said was, um, 
the quality of life is going to be different. Um, in fact, the quality of life looked rather uh, unimpressive for uh, KRD. It didn't improve quality of life over VRD induction. Um, some of the other criticisms that were said, I mean, a lot of things were said, but once Shaji actually gave the presentation, I think they all dissipated and there's really nothing left to say uh, other than it looks like routine upfront use of KRD will add cost and it won't even get you PFS. And if it doesn't even get you that, it's not going to get you likely a global health related quality of life benefit. It's not going to get you an OS benefit someday down the road. And it's a non-starter and it probably should stay where it is as a salvage triplet. Uh, and we can debate where it is. And these days with Dara coming on strong, I don't think it might be where uh, Amgen wants it to be. Oh, and then the last thing, oh, the, the high risk cytogenetics. And I, yeah, you know, there are going to be some people who still say that carfilzomib has a role for high risk uh, myeloma, uh, that 15% of market share. Some, people, some of those people may work for Amgen, but some people might say it and they genuinely believe it. And I would say that, you know what, you, we need to live in a world where if you want to make claims, you have to prove the value of your claims. You can't just sit around starting treating people with new costly novel drugs that just came on the block while you're getting consulting payments from the company and wait for cooperative groups to show you someday 10 years later that, you know, there was no benefit to what you do. So if you want to use this for high-risk myeloma, do the study and prove it's improving outcomes in high-risk myeloma. And until you do this study, just go with VRD and stop wasting our money and my patients. Next study. Oh, yes. Keynote 177. Pembro versus chemo for MSI high colorectal cancer. Yeah, this is another great example. I mean, obviously, we know that MSI high colon cancer, we got a drug approval for Pembro. Uh, we got a drug approval for tumor agnostic, for Christ's sake. And we got it for, uh, obviously, for nivolumab and the nevo ipi. Um, what, um, before we even look at the study, what, what should I tell you the principle here is, you know, if you have somebody with MSI high metastatic colon cancer, I think the current standard of care would be you give them full Fox therapy. Um, you then may give them full Fury therapy. Depending on how you feel, um, you may give them Pembro right then and there. Uh, alternatively, you might give them Pembro third line. I think a case can be made because of the durability of the response that you could give them Pembro second line. But I think some people would give them full Fury next and then give them Pembro. And I think that it would be hard to really quibble with that, I think, in current clinical practice. So let's say full Fox, um, Pembro, or full Fox, full Fury, then Pembro. I mean, that's kind of where we are in terms of clinical practice right now. Uh, do we want to get into the Bev business? I mean, maybe we could talk about that, but, um, I think uh, I'll, I'll set that aside because then I think that's going to be a big, big debate. Um, but Bev or Cetuximab, uh, obviously playing a role based on studies like uh, CLGB and FIRE. Uh, okay, so that's that's the control arm. We've kind of walked through that. Now, what's your experimental arm? Well, of course, if you're Merck, your question is, is the routine upfront use of pembrolizumab um, followed by, God forbid, the people who progress, um, you know, full Fox and then full Fury, um, uh, is that superior to the current standard of care, which is full Fox first, followed by pembrolizumab? And again, if you wanted to judge these really fairly, and we lived in a world where people actually, you know, really cared about patients and wanted to do clinical trials the right way, rather than just, let's, God forbid, to just expand market share. Um, the kind of study you would do is you would mandate crossover um, in the uh, control arm, which is kind of standard of care, and you'd compare it to Pembro and then chemotherapy, and you would follow health-related quality of life over the entire time horizon, and you'd also follow overall survival, and you'd look to see whether or not the routine upfront use of Pembro conferred a survival benefit. 
But you know, if I worked for Merck and somebody came to me and pitched me that study, and let's say we lived in a world where I knew the FDA would actually enforce quality of life and overall survival as like the valid endpoints that we deal with, um, you know, the first thing I'd say is I'd be like, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit nervous because I know that even at MSI high, Pembro is not 100% response rate. In fact, it's probably glass half empty, a little bit lower, rather than glass half full, a little bit higher, if you know what I mean. Um, and so what I would say is I'm worried there's going to be a sweep of the PFS curve and Pembro is going to start uh, off at the gates at a, at a very slow rate. And I might even think of sort of a third arm of the study, probably the, the best arm, um, which would be full Fox plus Pembro, um, followed by, you know, full theory or whatever standard of care you want. That's an experimental arm. Uh, another experimental arm would be Pembro and then chemotherapy. And then the, the third arm would be, of course, the control arm, which is chemotherapy and then Pembro, which is the current standard of care. Um, so I would I would run it that way. Then I have two ways to win. If chemo with Pembro wins has an o, a global OS benefit, uh, I get more market share of Pembro. If Pembro then chemo wins, I get more market share. And the control arm, of course, is the current standard of care. So that's kind of how I would think about it if I was working for the company. And let's say, God forbid, I was a cooperative group thinking about this problem. I guess what I would say is, you know, if you're really going to benefit from PD-1 inhibition here, Maybe what you want to do is give it for a fixed time period. Maybe you want to give chemo Pembro six months and then just cut the Pembro um, because, um, you know, you're going to you're gonna un unmask the fraction of people who may have durable remissions from the Pembro in that six-month bolus, and you're going to save the cost of uh, prolonged Pembrolizumab infusions. Um, so maybe if you're a cooperative group, that's the kind of study you want to run. Um, Pembro, then chemo, which is the experimental arm here, you might compare that against full Fox for six months, and you normally would drop the oxaliplatin then, um, and Pembro for six months, and then just drop the Pembro, something like that. Anyway, this clinical trial, of course, tests Pembro, followed by chemotherapy, versus chemotherapy. Um, and the primary endpoint is progression-free survival, which is not the appropriate primary endpoint. And of course, there is a progression-free survival benefit. The curves... Um, cross initially as I feared, which is that there's some people who probably really do need full Fox and Pembro is not going to do it for them. Um, and of course, the Pembro PFS is supported by the fact that people who do respond to Pembro often have a durable response. And that's what drives, I think, the bulk of the log rank statistic. Uh, the discussion actually made a really good point about Cox proportionate hazard modeling and how that's technically um, inappropriate when there are two periods of risk here. Clearly, there's an early initial period where hazards look one way, Pembro looks worse, and then a later period where hazards look the other way and Pembro looks better. Um, and so the Cox doesn't quite work for you there. But nevertheless, the log rank is, is probably good enough to conclude that the PFS is in fact better. So what's my takeaway here? I guess I would say that if, lo and behold, um, the control arm actually gets a good amount of pembrolizumab um, in second-line therapy, which is what you want here because the drug's already approved for a latter line of therapy, um, and the OS is really the same, um, I think you're going to want to look at health-related quality of life, not just in the beginning, but obviously for the first and second treatments, right? Because we want to look at quality of life over a longer period of time. I think this is going to be a great place for somebody like EORTC, somebody like um, EEC, well, not the Americans probably, but probably Europeans or Canadians um, to ask whether or not you can get away with chemo and Pembro and, and, then, and then abbreviate, you know, put a time limit on how much Pembro and chemo you're going to get. Um, that might be kind of a provocative way, a couple doses of Pembro to see how many people you can get into durable remission and then spare the rest of people sort of prolonged pembrolizumab infusions. I think that's an interesting hypothesis. But anyway, long story short, um, 
it's an okay study. I mean, bad endpoint. Yeah, it's not the right endpoint. I think, um, you know, all these three of these studies have something in common. Um, the Avalumab maintenance, the uh, KRD, and this, they all have in common that what is fundamentally going on here in these studies is we are not debuting a novel agent. We're not. We're taking a drug that we know has a benefit in a latter line of therapy and asking if the routine upfront administration of that drug is better than giving it in the latter line as is currently standard of care. Now, you understand, this is a question that matters a great deal to drug companies. I just don't, I just don't think we, we forget how much it matters to drug companies. If you were to sort of plot market share, you would find market share as a funnel. For every many, many people who present with de novo metastatic disease or even adjuvant disease, there are fewer and fewer people as you go further out. In second-line therapy, there are fewer people to treat. In third-line therapy, there are fewer people to treat. They take drugs for shorter periods of time. Your market share dwindles with lines of therapy, and you want to move your drug to the beginning because then you're going to get the most people taking it for the most period of time. That's the most dollar bills in your pocket. And if you want to live in a world where doctors and patients get to make the right decisions, you always have to ask the question, is the routine upfront experimental arm better than the current standard of care where I make sure, I make damn sure I do a good job of giving this effective drug on the back end in second line, uh, as a second line triplet, um, uh, you know, for second or third line in MSI high, you got to make sure you're giving it on the back end because that's the real question. Should I be giving Pembro to everyone up front or is it sufficient to wait to keep it in my back pocket and save it for the second and third line. Do I really get an OS benefit? Is it really worth the cost? Do I really get a quality of life benefit over a long period of time? That's the fundamental question. So when people talk about crossover, should you have crossover? When you have a drug that has already proven a benefit in a latter line of therapy, you want to move it forward. Crossover is mandatory to ask the right question. Conversely, the opposite situation of crossover is the sipilusal T's of the world, or the vandetinibs of the world, or the olaparibs in castrate-resistant prostate cancer with HDR deficiencies of the world. That question is you have a drug that has never established benefit in a latter line of therapy, and you want to insert it into your treatment algorithm. And in those cases, you don't want crossover because crossover can actually impair post-protocol therapy for your control arm and create a survival benefit when in fact none exists. And anyway, if you really want to understand this issue, I think I cover it in chapter, I believe, nine of Malignant. Um, and I think that's probably the best place to do it because it's really a tough issue to grasp. All right. Last study. Boy, I'm tired. This took too long. Oh, awesome, Eric Oh, God. Adora study. And you know, again, that's so funny. This is really four out of five abstracts are really drug company drugs that are trying to get you to get use more of. You know, it's just fascinating. And the best way to use more of something is use it early because you get the bigger population. So here it's Aussie adjuvant, stage 1B to 3A, EGFR mutation positive, non-small cell lung cancer, Adora. So we already know, you know, many of the experts in lung cancer were persuaded by flora and they're using routine upfront osimertinib. And I'm going to take that for granted for the purpose of my discussion, although I have some asterisk there and you can go back to a prior episode. But let's just take that for granted because that's the popular, that's the, that's the, this trial is trying to change their practice. Let's be honest. 
Um, what do we know here? Uh, one, um, we know that some people with, say, four centimeter tumors or other high risk features with 1B are going to get adjuvant chemotherapy, certainly all of your twos and your three A's. But of course, this study allows you to enroll in the study without receiving adjuvant chemotherapy, which, of course, is just going to stack the deck in favor of the novel adjuvant drug and is a huge disservice because, of course, we would be providing adjuvant chemotherapy in the real world. And, you know, when somebody shows you a forest plot, ex post facto that shows you a comparable hazard ratio, they haven't really shown you the benefit is the same, right? They're showing you the hazard ratio is comparable, but the benefit is the absolute risk reduction. By the way, that's how we make adjuvant treatment decisions. And that may be markedly different, obviously, um, in people who've gotten chemotherapy than in people who have not gotten chemotherapy. And it's the absolute risk reduction that drives treatment decisions in adjuvant decisions. It's not the relative risk reduction or hazard ratio. I just want to reiterate that. Okay, that's the number needed to treat. It's the absolute risk reduction. The number needed to treat, of course, here's one over at the absolute risk reduction. That makes a lot of sense in adjuvant, especially if the adjuvant is a curative treatment. Whether or not this is curative or just pushes microscopic disease, that's another story. Okay, next issue. CT scans for the brain. <laughs> you can't do a CT scan for the brain to stage a brain. Get out of here. I'm going to have to bleep out this podcast if I continue to talk about this issue. You need an MRI of the brain to stage. Um, hello? CT scan is inappropriate for brain staging, okay? Um, you need PET CTs, okay? These are part of normal staging. If you did that routinely in this trial, which I don't know for sure they've done or not, but I have a feeling from looking at their slides when they say brain imaging was performed, but they don't say MR brain, I have a feeling that they're going to allow some CTs. And I have a feeling they're not going to do PET CTs. And what that means is they've likely included occult metastatic disease in their trial. And that, of course, stacks the deck in favor of osimertinib, but is a distortion from your clinical practice where you're actually staging people appropriately. So do not run your global trials and not perform U.S. staging. And if you want to do that, then I think we're going to have to revolt. The FDA should just um, reject that data or just look at the subgroups because I think that's grossly inappropriate. Next point. Um, the real question here is, by giving 100 people osimertinib, many of whom will never recur because they're cured from the surgery, um, do you improve quality of life or survival over giving a fraction of people osimertinib when they have relapse? It's going to be a fraction. And they have to get osimertinib when they relapse. They can't get gefitinib when they relapse, and they can't get platinum when they relapse. And when you give them osimertinib, they're going to have a lengthy progression-free survival interval, something like 18 months. Um, and so the real question is, by giving adjuvant upfront, are you improving the curative fraction? Are you improving overall survival than giving osimertinib to the few people, the handful of people, the fraction of people who relapse. Okay, so what do you have to do to do this trial right? One, you've got to give adjuvant therapy as you would give in your clinic. Did they do that? Mm, I don't think so. Two, you've got to stage patients as you would in your clinic with MRs and PET-CTs. Did they do that? Mm, I don't know, but I'm not betting I'm going to be happy about that answer. Three, when people in the control arm did relapse, did they get osimertinib? Mm, I don't know about that. I don't know. Four, did they improve overall survival? Oh, we don't know about that either, because we don't know. We know they have a big DFS benefit and they have a hazard ratio of 0.17. And as I like to say on Twitter, they like to shout, I have a hazard ratio of 0.17. For DFS, they whisper, for DFS, not for OS, no. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually do get an OS benefit, because the easiest way, I mean, if I worked for this company, I would get an OS benefit so easy. One, I'd be like, look, let's go over globally, let's run this trial in places where we can get away with CT brain and we can skip pets on half these patients. So we'll chuck in a few, you know, occult metastatic disease patients that's going to help us because it's better to treat them with Aussie than to let them sit around, you know? Okay, so that's one. Two, when uh, the control arm progresses, 
you know, some of these places, they can't afford osimertinib. So you know what? Good luck to you. Find what you can afford. And maybe you afford gefitinib and maybe you afford platinum, you know? And that's going to help me boost my OS benefit. Um, three, um, you know, whoever said they had to have chemotherapy? You know, maybe we'll, we'll keep it liberal. We'll say, look, you could have had chemo. You could not have had chemo. And if you don't have chemo, maybe we'll let you enroll a little bit sooner. You know, you can enroll a few weeks sooner. And maybe that's kind of a perverse and tacit incentive to get people in some of these places on the clinical study. And there are going to be some perhaps unscrupulous investigators enrolling people on the study without even having a good conversation about whether or not they are candidates for chemotherapy adjuvant. Uh, so that's going to help. And then four, if I was at the drug company and I really wanted to sell a trial with some substantive flaws, let's grease the skids here. Let's just get many, many of the practitioners in this space to consult for us, to come give us lectures, to give us their input. Let's have some ad boards. Let's really get them wine and dine them and pay them some money. And that's what I fear is going on here. So Adora, what will make this a positive study? If people got appropriate standard of care chemotherapy, if people got appropriate brain imaging, if everyone on the control arm who progressed got osimertinib, um, and if there's still a subsequent overall survival reduction, then I think you can run the dollar per quality adjusted life your calculation. And you know what? I'm going to share some back of the envelope calculation I ran. Yeah, I mean, somebody was saying online that um, you're going to have to treat these people with osimertinib anyway, so you might as well treat them early um, and get that DFS benefit than treat them when they m have metastatic disease because it's going to be, uh, and and it, it, even though the drug is very expensive, it's not going to cost that much more. And I was like, that's got to be wrong. I was like, let's say osimertinib costs $17,000 a month. I actually think that's a clearance price, but let's say it's $17,000 a month. The cost to treat 100 people per Adara study with a three-year treatment where maybe let's say 90% of people get treatment, we're talking the high 50 mils to maybe the low 60 mils, 50 to 60 mil. Of 100 people in the control arm of Adora who don't get osimertinib treatment, let's say you treat a fraction of them upon progression and you treat them based on flora. Um, you're going to have a duration of treatment of, I believe, about 16 and a half months in the flora study. So let's assume 80% progress. Well, instead of 50 mil, um, you're going to be paying 22 mil. Let's assume 60% progress. They actually, you know, you actually provided appropriate chemotherapy and you actually stage people appropriately. So you, you guys understand, and this is another technical point. When you stage people appropriately and you pull occult metastatic disease to stage four, you're going to lower the rate of recurrence in stage three and two. Um, this is the Will Rogers effect. Um, this is stage migration. Um, this is a very important principle. And so, um, Perhaps one of the reasons the control arm is doing so poorly here is that they have occult metastatic disease. They don't really have stage two disease. They have stage four disease, and they're increasing the risk of relapse. Anyway, so let's assume 60% progress because you actually stage people appropriately. Then, in fact, it would only cost you $16 million if you gave everyone osibarinib rather than your high 50s to low 60s. So you're going to be talking about a $40 million savings for 100 people, more or less. Um, and let's just divide that out, $40 million for 100 people. Yeah, 40 million for 100 people, that's like a 400 grand payment, you know? Um, this is an extremely costly, costly regimen. Um, I think there are going to be few people who, if their own sort of desires were factored in, if they could get some some proportion of that money, I think there would be few people who would actually, actually choose this drug. Anyway, long story short, um, you know, I don't know the answer to a DORA study. I'm certainly not uh, going to be one of these people who celebrate a hazard ratio for DFS. Oh, the other thing about DFS is, you know, prior surrogate validation studies have shown a strong concordance between DFS and OS for non-small cell lung cancer adjuvant therapies. 
I know that. Um, however, that was done on studies for cytotoxic drugs and whether that applies to a targeted drug, which may not eradicate microscopic disease, but merely slow the growth of microscopic disease remains to be seen. The next thing I would say is that DFS is always contingent on the quality and the frequency of CAT scans being performed to assess people for progressive events. And maybe some of these events that are relapse are merely detection events. They have tiny, small pulmonary nodules. They have a tiny um, lesion, uh, perhaps on the bone that's been bone biopsied, and that's EGFR lung cancer. Um, and perhaps that those may not necessarily be clinically meaningful. That's why you have to measure health-related quality of life over a long period of time in these studies to really make the right answer. So anyway, bottom line, OS is the only endpoint that matters. Control arm patients sure as hell have better gotten osimertinib on progression. The staging of the brain and the body best have been up to US standard. Otherwise, you're going to have occult metastatic disease in this trial. Um, and even if all these preconditions are met, then we're going to have to do the dollar per quality analysis. Um, and that all remains to be seen. So last thought. All of the principles of oncology that I have just described that go through my mind when I think about the five abstracts here are principles that were known. The, in, the, in the era of the 1980s and the 90s, these were commonly described and discussed principles, um, and they're increasingly being forgotten. They're being forgotten because many people who are quote unquote experts in the disease who are happy to go to CME events and drug ad boards and dinners. They were never taught these things, and they live in a world where the hype and the money is too good to ask tough questions. Many of them may not have actually been taught principles of statistics, of evidence-based medicine, of trial design. And I don't blame them for that, but I do think they are conveniently ignoring these clear principles. And some experts have said that these trials, which all suffer from problems, um, nevertheless should change practice. And on a later date, we should, you know, fight for lower drug prices. Well, I find that argument irritating because I find it's disingenuous to take a $10,000 payment from AstraZeneca and then claim that you're fighting them for high drug prices because you see the high drug price is what gives you the payment in the pocket. If, it, if the price weren't so high, not only would the patient's copay be lower, but they wouldn't be pouring so much money into the expert's pockets. You see that you're kind of, you're kind of living off of that money. You know, I mean, there's a lot of metaphors for this, but I'm trying to be polite here. Okay. Anyway, so that's that. Um, all of the four of these trials are trying to take a drug we already use and get us to use more of it. You see, the people who are doing the trial, they don't really care about asking the question whether or not getting you to use more of it is actually best for the patient. They want to ask a perverted question, which is, can I sell you on getting to use more of it? Is the trial good enough to get you to change your ways? It's not, is the trial the right trial, which is control arms have to get what you would be doing for these control arm patients in your clinic. And I say these control arm patients, these are trials with exquisite selection biases. The patients on these trials in the control arm are like the best patients in your clinic. They're the young patients, the patients you're going to be pushing really hard on to make sure if they have bladder cancer, the moment they progress second line, I'm going to give them Pembro. You know, I'm not going to let them sit around. The moment they have progression after VRD transplant and then Revlimid maintenance, 
I'm going to give him a DARA containing regiment or CR, or I'm going to give him carfilzomib regiment. And, you know, that the moment that happens, I'm going to be very vigilant for these patients. Um, and they're going to be fit enough to, to tolerate that. Um, the MSI high patient colon cancer patients, those are the ones where I'm going to be thinking about pembrolizumab in the second line for durable response and osimertinib patients, the EGFR patients who are, you're going to watch really closely and you're going to give, um, you know, osimertinib ostensibly. Um, a drug, by the way, that crosses the blood-brain barrier, um, and you're going to stage them appropriately. So all of these trials are trying to get you to use a drug that you normally use later sooner. And the only way to justify that is if the control arm gets the appropriate use of that drug as you ought to be doing it now. And the easiest way to cheat in all these trials is to do a bad job of giving the control arm the drug on the back end, is to enroll people in the study um, who don't really belong there. Like what would happen if, if God forbid, you allowed a CT scan of the brain and no PET scan to be uh, to, to, to say someone's a 3A patient. If you allow that in our tumor board, uh, at a lung cancer tumor board, you're going to get laughed at. You're going to get somebody yelling at you and say, where's the PET CT? You know what? Before we talk about this patient next, this PET CT is going to get done. Um, and, and yet... This is the sort of classic ways in which I think these trials run in the classic biases. Anyway, that's just food for thought. I haven't read all these papers. And when they're published, I'm going to go through the supplement. And I'm going to read these papers. But I've read a lot of papers. And these are the kinds of things that always disappoint me. And someday I'm going to do a better job of being able to articulate and teach um, what exactly it is about all of these trials that troubles me, that it is in fact not a subjective view. It is an objective view of how we ought to evaluate trials. It is known to many people. If I, when I get Ian Tannock, who has had a 40 year plus career in oncology to come on this podcast, um, he's going to agree on every single one of these points. And I know that because recently we've been sharing some things we've written independently and it blew my mind that Tanak and I, you know, and Chris Booth, uh, who's a marvelous thinker and, uh, and Bashal and, and many other people, um, you know, we all think the same, um, because these are sort of, sort of logical principles of cancer trial design. Um, so, so that's it. ASCO plenary session meets the real plenary session. There are three things that distinguish me from the plenary session discussants you heard during the annual meeting. One, of course, unfortunately, I didn't serve on the data safety monitoring committee of any of these clinical studies. Second, I didn't receive any consulting payments from any of the companies I talked about. I, I'm actually most sorry about that because I could have used the money. Uh, and then the third thing that differentiates me from the discussants is I don't work at Sarah Cannon, and, uh, and I'm sorry about that. So hope you enjoyed. And on that positive note, we're going to turn to questions from a medical student. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Audrey Tran for questions from Audrey Tran or questions from a medical student, <laughs> our popular segment. Audrey, it's great to have you back. It's great to be here. I'm still sore from the last time you were on and I told you about how I was going to the gym frequently and you immediately burst into laughter <laughs> in a not very emotionally supportive way. I, I apologize for any uh, personal discomfort or shame that might have brought upon you. It brought, but, uh, brought, brought a great deal of shame. I, could have, it could be true, Audrey. It could be. Who's to say? We're, we're on a podcast. We're on a podcast. You can't tell. There's, a, re fine. there's a reason why it's audio only, huh? Yeah. So, yeah. But we're back. I'm, I'm getting over that. Um, and here we have another great question for this week. So... You take it away. Sure. Okay. So the question for this week 
is to talk about step one recently turning to a pass-fail uh, instead of the numeric score that it has been for quite some time. Um, I was curious to know what your thoughts were. I feel you've, you've ta- you you were kind of discussing in a tweet kind of already your initial thoughts and especially how this is great for us to try and a great step for us to try and focus on more of the relevant curriculum for physicians in the 21st century. Um, and I'm just curious to know if you have any more thoughts about what else needs to follow this policy change. Um, will, I think there's lots of been arguments for and against this um, this kind of recent switch uh, to it being pass-fail. Um, and do you think that students and educators will be incentivized to center the appraisal and the reasoning um, in preclinical years, or will there be other ways to capitalize on other aspects of med school now that step one will eventually matter less? That's a great question. And after I answer, then I want you to answer. Let's okay. see what you have to yeah, say about sure. this. You've taken step one. Yes, I have. Me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I And I should also disclose, yeah. I don't just hate, I, I, I actually... <laughs> And I don't want you to burst into laughter like okay, the other people. All right, contagious. I, I, I did. I did well on step one. Sure. I just. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 I, I, did, I, did, I did. I totally I did, agree. I did well. I, I did totally well. Agree. So I'm not saying this because I like hate step one. Right. 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 It opened doors. Right. But the point is that this, this doing well on step one and opening those doors are neither here nor there. Right. Wrong doors. Audrey, 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 I want you to know I could have been a dermatologist. <laughs> I probably. Probably. I, sure. And now I was recently looking through the double AMC salaries, mm-hmm. so. <laughs> probably, probably should have been. Probably should have been a dermatologist. A lot of regrets in this life. Um, so, okay, let's talk about step one being pass fail. I don't know. There's a few things I want to just say. One, like, I mean, I guess I think it's really brought out different. I mean, strange bedfellows. There are different people who hate. People hate step one for different reasons. Mm-hmm. I think there's a group of people out there who hate step one um, because they just hate the idea that anyone should ever get any evaluation. I mean, I think that is part of the mm. conversation is that people are like, oh, you know, we shouldn't be scored on a scale. Right. You know, people shouldn't be defined this way. I'm gonna put that on the back burner for now because I'm partly sympathetic to that, but I'm partly like not super sympathetic to that because I'm maybe because the year I was born is not, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not quite a millennial, but no, <laughs> but you know, okay, so that's one question. But then I think the other thing people hate about step one is the content is irrelevant. Right. And I will die on that hill. <laughs> that the content is irrelevant. It is really stupid, irrelevant content. Mm-hmm. You know, I had the I had that first year student in my clinic recently right, and he had right. the flashcards and he was quizzing yes. me on these things and I was bombing on these things. But I'm like, <laughs> look, you don't need those are just such triviality asking me what innervates like intrinsic muscles of the hand and forearm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, maybe a hand surgeon needs to know that, but I'm a medical oncologist. It hasn't come up. And I quiz, I quiz my classmates who right. are in all different fields and, and not a single one of them remember the answers to these questions. Like memorizing trivia is just a waste of time. Meanwhile, in whatever field you do in medicine, you're constantly confronted by new devices and procedures and tests and things people are saying you should implement in your practice. And you need to go home and ask yourself, well, should I or shouldn't I? I need to answer that. That's like everything everyone faces. And the toolkit, you need to answer that question. How do you evaluate the studies? Does it work for your patient? How do you fit it all together? That toolkit is just like a dusty, rotting toolkit, you know, like the students get a lousy job of that toolkit, which is like the key toolkit. So like it takes up time. It's irrelevant content. It's got to go. In the absence of it going, it's pass fail, which I thought was a step forward Mm -hmm. for the simple reason that, you know, if you make something pass fail, you just need to teach people enough to pass. And then you can, I wrote, I think, claw back the time to teach like actually being a doctor. And so, so I think that's another reason people hate step one. The content is bad. The first reason, of course, is that like we shouldn't evaluate people. Now I want to come back to that and talk about that evaluation thing. I think it's really weird that, you know, I don't know, medical education has these t- dueling goals, which we talked about recently, I think. Like one is 
like you want to take the students you have and make them better doctors. Right. Mm-hmm. And like presumably, ostensibly, that's like the most important thing. And then the other thing is you want to take the students you have and as you're training them to be better doctors, decide who's better than others. <laughs> and that to me is always kind of like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, I don't know about that. Um, because unless you're going to say that they're so bad they shouldn't be a doctor, mm-hmm. which maybe that's, and I think that is true for some people, that, okay, that's useful. But if they're going to be a doctor anyway, um, you got to make them as good as they can be. Right. And, and insofar as evaluating them encourages them to make them better, okay, have at it. But if you're evaluating them just to put a number on them, to tattoo their class rank on, when you're not really going to do anything extra to make them better, I don't know what you're really serving. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I'm not so far gone that I think that like everyone is all the same and people aren't better than others. I do, yeah, I mean, I've attended on service. They're definitely better. People are better than other people. Faculty too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't know how to, so you want to balance all these things. So, um, okay, and, and then, and the reason this matters, this ranking is because we use it to select people. All right, so this is what I think is the real problem. Um, like you talk about the hand-in-hand reform. So like the things I think should be reformed together. Step one should go away because that content is not the best content. Mm-hmm. Poof. Mm-hmm. Pass-fail is a step forward. Um, the specialties that are the most coveted, they need to, that needs to change. Yeah. This is crazy yeah. talk. This is crazy talk. When you look at the specialties that have the highest median step one score, those are not the specialties that should be the most coveted specialties. And the only reason they're the most specialties, they're the most coveted is that the average salaries are so damn high. Yeah. And then the average controllable work hours is so high as a percentage. Mm-hmm. So in other words, um, I, I think, and I haven't done this, but I bet you could do linear regression. And if somebody does it and tells me what, tell me what the R squared is, but between uh, dollars per hour worked and the number of hours that are controllable, i.e. you don't have to come in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that explains, I would say 60, my guess is 60% of the competitiveness of specialties. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so what, what, I, what I think is we need like massive reform. And that is a, that's a problem that is, you know, this salary hierarchy came into being from things like the original RVU scoring system. And once some specialties saw that they were scoring very highly, they throw tremendous lobbying incentive into preserving mm-hmm. that hierarchy. Right, right. And so nobody wants to be paid less. So they all want to keep their salaries high. Um, But I think if you really level the playing field there and you made it the case so that dermatology wasn't paid nearly double what primary care is paid, um, I think you would you would definitely see that that would not be as competitive. It would kind of change overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, The next thing about it is um, useless quality measures and those kinds of things. If you took them out of primary care, too, I think primary care is also getting better. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think those two things go hand in hand. Um, will it be kicking the can down the road? Oh, yeah. So this is the step two thing. I guess I would say about step two, CK, as much as I, um, you know, think that it's also not like a perfect test, it's a lot better than step one. You know, the, the question has something to do with being a doctor, not nothing to do with being a doctor. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, people are worried that it'll be used to select for these subspecialties. But like I've already said, I just don't think that these should be the most coveted subspecialties. Then the next question is like, well, um, uh, we still, even if it was just internal medicine, we still need a way to decide who goes to the Brigham and who goes to UCSF and who goes to OHSU and who goes to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And there, I think that, you know, all of these programs should think more about how to train better internists. Mm-hmm. Um, but we should kind of take away some of this crazy idea that like when I was taught that going to Brigham is one, MGH is two right. and SF is three. <laughs> uh, you know, and yeah. then I was also taught that the distance from MGH to SF is closer than MGH to the Brigham. And this is what this is a lot of people tell me. Really? Yeah. 
And that is like kind of, what was that based in? Totally crazy. <laughs> totally crazy. It's all like a self-fulfilling prophecy that like, because Brigham is thought of as one, the best mm-hmm. students want to go to Brigham. Uh, they get to get, they get into Brigham. They're going to take that over other options. Right. Uh, but what are they doing that makes them number one? Right. I don't think they're, you know, quality yes. of education is any better. I, I find that really interesting because, um, when you think about the quality of an education or to me, to me, I, I, I always say that, like I went to undergrad and I thought it was like a really excellent education, mostly because it was, I felt like I had started from here positioning a very low <laughs> bar on mm-hmm. the ground. And then I, I really feel like I learned a different perspective, especially because it was a women's college. And so like there was just a different philosophy and, and I think I just gained a lot of knowledge. And so like the, the, um, percent change or the, the Delta, the Delta was really the significant thing. Um, and it's like, I think everyone should strive no matter where you are. It's like the best school is the one that can actually has the largest Delta. I know that's, right? I totally agree. Um, and not necessarily like these metrics, which are time points, which are being like this, 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 and this it's like, it, again, like you said, I think it just kind of, again, creates this loop of, uh, you know, achievement and accomplishment that gets more achievement. But what does it really mean about your own education and, and the internal idea of like what you know and what you're capable and what of you're doing. capable of doing? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's well put. And I went to, you know, I went to Michigan State, which mm-hmm. I think by, you know, uh, which is not thought of as like a, a powerhouse undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to do stuff in two majors, mm-hmm. physiology and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I would say that um, w- until I got to the advanced courses, the majority of the early physiology biochemistry courses were these like 300 person lecture hall, oh. mass, horrible class. So bad. Yeah, so, I, can't, so, I can't imagine that. I know. Really, it, I really can't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You were always small class. It classes? was 30, 30 people. Oh, see, that's, so, that's some version great. of that. It was really wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So, one half of my education is like taking biochemistry with 250 other people mm-hmm. in this like huge auditorium. Awful education. Mm-hmm. Awful content. Awful education. You know, mm-hmm. of course, it's turning people off. And then, like, but then philosophy, I'm in it with like, I, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, mm-hmm. ten people graduated yeah. as majors um, in the College of Arts and Letters. Um, you know, and, and like so intimate mm-hmm. um, that I got to I get to talk to all the professors yeah. for like unlimited amounts oh, so of time. I think that's so important. That's the most important thing. Is yeah. I would say that it, the, the quality of the education in philosophy was like, I mean, I didn't go to Harvard, but I bet it would be like, I can't imagine me better at Harvard. The people I, who I train at, they all, you know, they, their doctorate degrees are from Princeton and from, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, all the, all the prestigious universities are very smart people. Mm-hmm. And how, and there are not many students coming to their office hours to talk to them for like 30 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we also had like study abroad opportunities and I got to spend a summer with, you know, in Costa Rica with Fred Gifford and, uh, and, you know, and, and another professor there, Scott Yoder. And then, so like, you know, I, I gotten to talk to some of these professors of mine for, you know, hundred hours over mm-hmm. the course of an, over the course of college. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's, that's like where you're really getting your education, yeah, you exactly. know? And so I thought like, you know, it's like the Delta there is like huge, like it's mm-hmm. really good Delta. Um, Okay, so back to step one being pass fail. So I guess yeah. So I guess like yeah. So like, why are these places coveted? Brigham, MGH, uh, UCSF. Uh, I think because they get a lot of good colleagues, and that certainly does matter. Like you, you know, your training is as good as like the people you're working with to some degree. Mm-hmm. But I don't think necessarily because they have great deltas. And I think that if you took away sort of these capricious, random, arbitrary metrics to rank people, you might just kind of reshuffle things. And I heard this really provocative idea on a different podcast, um, Deep Dive with Laura Arnold, where she was saying, she was interviewing the president of Harvard, Mm -hmm. and she said there's an education scholar who has this proposal for Harvard, which is that you only have like 1,600 spots, and every year you're getting, you know, I don't know, 50,000 applications, and 4,000 kids are the same. 
perfect SAT scores and this, that, and so they're all perfect. They play all the, they play all the instruments. They do everything. They speak all the languages. They're all like the perfect kid. And they're all the same. They're the same, you know, they're all the perfect kid, but you have to pick from 4,000 to 1600. And this person said, you just have a threshold and you say that above this, you're Harvard eligible. And then you do random lottery. And it kind of takes away a lot of the, it will kind of make things a little bit more fair and take things away from Harvard for like, so that somebody who is the same as somebody else, but mm-hmm. you know their application essay didn't you know speak to the <laughs> speak to the interviewer, um, you know they're not going to be discriminated against. Right. Um, and similarly, maybe maybe that's part of the solution for this stupid arms race. Yeah. Like the people who go to Brigham, MGH, and UCSF, they're good. They're really good. They're all going to be good. And if you randomly picked them and threw them at those places, <laughs> they're going to be just as good. And and if you put them in, you know, UCLA and UCSD and 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 Texas, they're still going to be good. You know, it's like and it doesn't matter. It's medicine. It's bread and butter medicine. And there's a good professor right. a lot of places. I was, it's yeah. actually funny uh, that you said that because I was, I was thinking of that same anecdote of just like you think about, OK, so you said there's 1600 spots of 4000 perfect kids. Mm-hmm. What about, the, you know, the other 14, uh, uh, 2400 people who are like. Like, less than perfect le- like who who were eligible but still didn't make it right right and right. what, exactly what, what will yeah. they think or like if if, if this is not explained or it's not clearly like you could have had you could have had just the same opportunities or um these sorts of things but they're like oh no but that what i'm doing right now if they are if they are looking for external validation which honestly when you're a high school kid like you if, are you some, are yeah, it's yeah. to some degree like the system makes you that way of course it makes you, you can't that way. just like you were saying in that one essay like you can't just frolic like without <laughs> right without that sense of impending like oh but if i do this this is a zero-sum game and therefore i'm not you know and therefore once i get that rejection letter or once i get when i hear that wait list it's like that that's that's my penance you know what i mean that's what i get for yeah for not, not doing the extra activity yes, or this extra exactly. bullshit or this ar- exactly. yeah it's fueling the arms race it's fueling the arms race. and you know what happens to those kids mm-hmm. they're like lisa in the simpsons they, oh. they get into brown and <laughs> not brown <laughs> Oh, brown. Right. No. But but I find that such as a waste of human potential. You know, to yeah. even to even have to entertain those thoughts. Yeah. It would be better if they right. say these are the kids who are I don't know, this is a proposal. I, and I'm not an educational scholar, but <laughs> yeah. look at think it through. Um I would like to look into it more, but I, just for the sake of discussion, mm-hmm. you have a threshold you say these are Ivy League eligible kids mm-hmm. and now we're going to randomly assign them to an Ivy League right. school. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. There, yeah, but uh, and and then it will feel better for the student to be like but I do think there's people who go to Penn feel like uh, they didn't get into Harvard and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I, I just personally am like, but the, you, you know, there's just so many great opportunities yeah. elsewhere that it, to, to fixate on that is, is, you know, it's a disservice to, to yourself too as well. And it also, I think, feeds into this idea that like going there is the badge of honor and right. not yeah. the self-improvement. Like, oh, I got into Brigham. I'm a great internal medicine doctor. It's like, no, you got into Brigham yeah. and now you're on the bottom rung. You got to work yeah. your ass off exactly. for 30 years if you want to really be good. Exactly. And you're never going to stop working. You're yes. always going to be working harder. Mm-hmm. And if you don't work all the time thinking about this, being better at being a doctor, you're easily going to be passed by anyone who went to any other place. You know, mm-hmm. like it doesn't give you that kind of feeling. Right, right. I don't know. Yeah. So, okay. So back to the step yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So pass, fail, step forward. Bigger, bigger solution would be delete the content and and, you know, um, I think the next part of your question was this encounter based. You know, that's what I always propose is like, um, you, you know, this is what Sifu and I did in the, in the book, Ending Medical Reversal. We have a chapter where it's, it's like the idea is you just do a very brief summer coursework in 
anatomy basics, biochemistry basics, just vocabulary basics. And then you hit the ground running with combination of like sort of clinical pathophysiology, pharmaceutical kind of discussion, learn the drugs, learn the diseases, learn how they present, how they manifest, slash get out there in the clinics, start going on rounds, and then start doing that kind of connective reading. And then, and then later on, at the end of your curriculum, you can get a little bit more molecular biology if you want to be a cancer doctor or a little more um, anatomy if you want to be a hand surgeon. You know, you can build that in the back end. But the core of being a doctor is people come to doctors with the same 43 most common chief complaints. You know, in all the for all the molecular pathways there are, mm-hmm. that stupid thing, there's the right. there's the forty most mm-hmm. common chief complaints. Headache, abdominal pain, uh, unintentional weight loss, the same forty common chief complaints. Isn't that you know, that's mm-hmm. the thing about yeah. medicine. And it does the clinical medicine does have some commonalities. The body breaks down in the same way, uh, despite the fact that there are all these bits of the body that could break down. And so you start with that and, and how do you work up headache? What are the questions you ask? What are the domains of headache? What are the types of headache? And then use that as the as the springboard to like learn about, you know, migraine as headache and maybe the degree to which that is affected by our knowledge of the brain, which is, you know, yeah. let's say medium. Um, <laughs> or abdominal pain where maybe it is affected. You know, there's a lot more pathophysiology you can learn about appendicitis or whatever, a diverticulitis, how that happens, how the remodeling of the colon happens and those kinds of things. Um, you know, use that as a springboard. And we call that encounter-based where, you know, right now, the, the medicine is presented, which I believe is like an illusion. It's um makes you feel good and warm and um, confident, but is not true, which is that we know all these first principles of basic science and biology. We're reductionists, and from that we can interpret how the body works. And and it's 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 seductive because you always know what to do when you don't know what to do, which is you think about the pathways or the physiology and you think what might compensate. Um, but it is deeply flawed because over history, people who have reasoned that way have often reasoned erroneously, um, you know, like giving isoproteranol to heart failure and killing people or, you know, giving drugs that should work but don't work, you know, when tested <laughs> empirically. And I think instead you flip it with a model where you think about how people seek out medical care whether chief complaints or the desire to be better than they already are and they feel fine, which is a whole different sort of philosophical school of medicine. And and how do you decide what works, what doesn't work, how to evaluate things, how to look through alternatives, what are the common classic ways the body breaks down, and then what are the zebras? And so we call that encounter-based, to bring the patient first and foremost in medical mm-hmm. thinking. Um, and, and so I think that that's what we should be doing instead of step one. And along the way, then if you also reform pay scale and you pay for specialties based on societal need and value, um, I think then you're going to drop dramatically your need to sort out students because mm-hmm. the, spe- the fields we need a lot more of are the ones we have a lot more spots in, you know, it turns out. <laughs> and so we, you know, we don't need to spend uh, all this energy creating tests to figure out who's the best medical student because we need a ton of family practice doctors that we cannot even educate in this country. And every year we have to rely on a huge influx of foreign graduates just to fill our residency spots. Um, so you're going to kind of shift this whole balance. Um, and, then, and then you can focus your energy on making the students you have the best students you have. Like how can you make them better doctors instead of evaluating uh, them all the time? Um, I don't know. You, your generation is like the generation that's been evaluated. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Right? Like yeah. more than any, my generation like to start, yeah. you know, I'm 1980, but like right. your generation, more than any generation, you've had like the most evals per unit time. <laughs> I think that's not, uh, not an untrue statement. Um, and I feel like, I think it's, it comes from a weirdly from a mindset of scarcity, right? Like, or again, like if you don't know, 
by this point, it's like I think everyone just feels like there's only so many places. Like even like cities, I feel like these are getting overcrowded in in places. And I'm and I'm looking at different residency programs and just being like, oh, but why have I never really heard about I don't know, like places in the Midwest more right. often? Like why why isn't that also isn't that also an excellent place a get an education and also could be an excellent um, way of life and culturally and whatnot? But I I don't know why like what the point of being evaluated has served or like or like how much is it how helpful is it and how um I feel like if we fixate on the evaluation like how much of that becomes your identity too you know what I mean if kids and people are like built into systems where they believe that their their worth comes from numbers um I don't know there's just this motivation and this like natural curiosity I just feel like all of that gets really squished and like suffocated and there's there's no incentive I think to like do and be different yeah. besides besides this one thing that we present to each other, like the little star on our belly or whatever, you know? I think like that you're right. It carries forward for like a lifetime of like thinking inside the box kind of. Right. Yeah. Cause it's like, cause it's, it's almost, it's very prescriptive, right? Yeah. There's, there's a prescription to being a perfect person. Yeah. Um, but it, that's how useful is that to society? I don't know. And I think like the other irony I see now with like, if I, if I were to go back and if, if, imagine this is like sort of another thought experiment, but like somebody's like, oh, a VP, here's your task. Um, the emergency room at OHSU is empty. Poof. Mm-hmm. Um, using your classmates from medical school, you mm-hmm. got to pick a team of oh. seven <laughs> classmates and right. you got to staff that right now. Mm-hmm. Who are you going to pick? Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, it's not. And, and, and then you also like, oh, here's the class rank. You know, right, right. I'm going to cut that class rank in two. I'm going to tear that piece of paper. I'm saying no. It's this class rank. It tells is is bullshit. It's not telling me. (laughs) It's not telling me anything. I got to staff this ER, and I can't count on these seven people who are in it for them. You know, these top seven. I here's who I'm going to pull. I'm going to pull my friend here. I'm going to pull this person over here. I Mm -hmm. I know this person. She's quiet, uh, or he's quiet. Mm -hmm. um, But my goodness, Mm -hmm. this is the person to count on. I know this person here. This person here uh, doesn't go home until the work is done. Period. Mm -hmm. End of story. This Mm -hmm. person the most reliable person. Uh, Okay, pull this person. You know, like who's the team you're going to build? And the fact that that and the conventional ranking is just like nothing to do with each other, um, you know, that says something. It says that like this is, you're you're, yes, it's easy to evaluate people Mm -hmm. all the time, but it's not the people you want to work with. It's not the people that in a pinch you can count on. Uh, It's not the people who you think you're going to do a good job. And then maybe the thought experiment is different. Now it's not a resource scarce setting. It's, It's the unit. And um, you've got three really sick patients and you need to bring a team of consultants in to figure out something that average, not average, but busy doctors with many patients haven't thought of. Who are you going to pick? Mm-hmm. And again, I promise you, it's not going to be, you know, the class <laughs> rank list, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but and no matter what situation, like who you're going to pick is like, I don't know, that's like a more interesting question mm-hmm. to me. Um, and, and we're not there yet. That said, like, I do think that, you know, insofar as giving somebody feedback and um, grading motivates people to be better because I know it is a motivation for right, some people right. to get a, you know, you always hear the story, I got one bad grade and I was like, never again, yeah, I, I you know, never again. <laughs> they always said I wouldn't remember these yeah. bad grades. I was like, I will prove you wrong. I remember, <laughs> I remember. that geometry quiz. And I, re- I was like, mm <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, it motivated you to remember. But I think you forget that like, um, I don't know, like, uh, and I also had that because I had some bad grades when I was like <laughs> at elementary school and I was like, oh, I think about it. But, um, and it did motivate me to like try to study. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one of the worries is, is that you create somebody who, um, you know, like the dog in the electric collar, they got, you mm-hmm. just shocked him when they didn't score well on the test. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to train him to score well on the test. They're going to be motivated to score well on the test. 
well, you know what? The test might be wrong or flawed or not capture what you really need to be really good at the job, um, which is not mm-hmm. a test. Mm-hmm. And the person who wrote the test might not might be aiming off the mark. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's also the problem with evaluation is because yeah. you shoot for the test. And the step one, that it's clearly a flaw. I mean, it's wrong test. Right. I would say that, like, I don't know, I'm spitballing here, but I don't know what the best way to evaluate students is. But if you had to evaluate students, how would I do it? I would say you have to pick 10 people who are known for being a good doctor. And they're, and that can be sought from a combination of their colleagues respect them and like them. They're good in morning report. Students generally like to work with them. And patients generally like them. All these things like the mark of a good doctor. And you pick the 10 faculty members who are there. And then you get all the students and you say, um, uh, we're going to go on a day where we're admitting patients. And the student is going to do the full H&P and the plan. And they're going to even put in, you know, sit down next to the resident and help them put the orders in. And your job is, you're the 10 people, you get to shadow the student. And you shadow the student, like I shadow the student in January, February, March, April, May, and I shadow mm-hmm. all these students. And so you have the same people. And then we like give like, you know, one tips on how to be better. Mm-hmm. And then also like, you know, how well did you do in like, you know, do, do I believe that the patient really trusted your recommendation? Did you, did you get through what you needed to get through? Did you do a good plan, you know, mm-hmm. and, and give you feedback on it and then let you work on it and right. improve. And, and how, how people are evaluated in that situation, I think that's like the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, the standardized patient, the, the you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the fake OSCE fake <laughs> yeah. situation, that's, that's not real. Yeah. And also presenting to someone one day after when the doctor wasn't there to watch how it happened, mm-hmm. that's not real either. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just like how the people who I know so intimately as a physician, when I was the intern and they were the second year resident mm-hmm. and they said, okay, we're getting slammed on a call right now. This patient, um, you come in with me, I'm going to do the H&P. You just write down what I'm doing. You just describe, you know, mm-hmm. and I've had se- senior residents do that to me when I was an intern, you come in with me and they go in like, oh, hi, so-and-so. And you know, the difference between, I don't know, somebody, Sean McCarthy, somebody who I went trained with who's like, God, Sean, if you're listening, you know, <laughs> he, he was like from the moment he was a PGY2, like yeah. the best doctor in the world. Wow. You could just tell wow. like the, wow. he connected yeah. with the patient. He asked the yeah. right questions. He has a perfect plan, calm, relaxed. And then I'm not going to name the names of the people mm-hmm. who were not the best doctor in the world. Mm-hmm. Hurried, impatient, didn't return. You know, you can see all those things when you're the, right. the, the trainee who's just helping them write it down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that kind of stuff is like where you really see how people's gears turn and mm-hmm. whether or not they're good or not. Um, but I think that information is instead of evaluating much more useful to ask, like, how can I make them better? Like, what are the domains they're not good at? Um, but I think the real reason that we don't ask the, how can I make them better question more is that if we really ask that, honestly, we would realize that so much of what we do in education is wasting your time. (laughs) The memorizing the useless two years. It's just Mm -hmm. like, it will make us sad that like in, in a four years medical school, maybe there's like six months where you're really getting a good education, right? When you're on clerkships, mm, right? Yeah. And then like the rest were just like wasting your time. <laughs> and then also those two weeks where somebody takes my elective. <laughs> <laughs> they were a very good two weeks though. We'll yeah, see. well, I guess I would say that, that talk about an elective that yeah. um, that's not going to be on any traditional curriculum. Yeah, Right? Sure. So different than everyone yeah. else. And I think, um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think, I think what you were saying about there, maybe it's that realization that we're we're not we're too scared to admit that realization is maybe why we aren't. I, I mean, like a part of it, not not the only reason. Like maybe tr- people truly believe that the way that we teach medical medicine right now is working. But yeah, I think I think for me, this idea of like the evaluative number is also so that we 
because I think to truly evaluate each person and like to see both their strengths and like how they can improve, like it's a real, that's also a very um, difficult skill. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think to, to remove your biases, remove like, okay, like I was busy this day. Um, and I, I, I've, I've been on, on the wards with people who are just slammed, you know what I mean? And yeah. I, 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 I'm not asking, you know, I, I can understand that I, I can't really ask them to like give me that full evaluation. And I've also seen people who even amidst that they were also looking out for students. And I was like, that's, first of all, that's like a very impressive from a teacher or a mentor standpoint. Um, and secondly, it's also like that, that work of like really evaluating someone in, in the truest sense of the word is a remarkable gift like when it when it really is not just about like okay you're gonna be here 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 and here but really like i see all the things that you have to offer and this is how you know this is what i think that you could do better but like you know it's easy to say that right now in this conversation but to really dedicate that time it's like i think it's time that people maybe aren't i don't know like maybe i won't feel like i have time to do that if i'm in a position where i have yeah, i think so and, I, and along those lines like let's say I mean, also, like, how do you how do you deliver the information yeah. in a way that moves people the right direction? Yes, yeah, I think that's so, a like, really good point too. Yeah, yeah like, so sometimes it's I see people, yeah, motivate. Yeah, sometimes I see people like, um, okay. they're like, uh, mm-hmm. so people come to me and say, like, look at the email I got from so and so. It's got some feedback in it, mm-hmm. and I was like, look at the email. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, there's some truth in the yeah, feedback, but. Yeah. When you send an email like that and somebody reads it, mm-hmm. there's a hundred percent chance they're mm-hmm. not going to believe the truth of the feedback. They're just going to think you're an asshole right. because you're writing sure. an email that sure. comes across like, why is this person going out of the way to take a dump right. on me? Right. Um, <laughs> you know, it feels that way. And so yeah. I was like, so like, I mean, when, then you start to think like, if you're really like care about mentoring somebody and you, uh, you care about like, actually, I don't know, getting them to do something differently. Then you have to like be like, okay, well, what do you think? Articulate to yourself what you want them to do differently mm-hmm. and then think about how do you tell them? Mm-hmm. And then how do you tell them is one, sometimes you can't tell them for years because you got to build, they got to trust you. They got to right. trust you so much and look right. up to you like, like you're actually in a position that when you tell them that mm-hmm. it doesn't come across as, for lack of a better word, an asshole thing to say to somebody, mm-hmm. but rather that you actually care about them and right. you're looking out for them and you think it's the best. And then maybe you don't tell them in a formal setting. Maybe you tell them when you know, you guys are walking to get coffee or mm-hmm. something. They're going to like lunch break or something like that. You know, you tell them in an informal mm-hmm. way. And, or maybe sometimes you don't tell but show, or you talk about mm-hmm. a third person who's not there and say, let me tell you the story about right. this person, how right. I gave them feedback. And this is the way it went, you know, sort of like an <laughs> allegory that they don't really see that it's them. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's also like an art yeah. to it. And, right. you know, of course, nobody in education, but oh, the other thing it made me think about was recently I was like, um, looked up the Grand Canyon and I clicked mm-hmm. on a Google Maps and it yeah. had like, um, whatever, 4.6 stars or something. It was, like, <laughs> it was like, it had stars and somebody's like, and somebody wrote like, uh, not enough restrooms or too hot. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. And I was like, but doesn't that, like the fact that we live in a time yeah. where people will r- evaluate the Grand yes. Canyon yes. for lack of drinking fountains, um, <laughs> is also how student evaluations feel to me a lot. Right. Was uninter- seemed disinterested, seemed preoccupied. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, with the, the shelf exam that you made 60% right. the test score. Yeah. Right. Preoccupied. Exactly. Of course, preoccupied. So yeah. You tried digging a big hole in the middle of the Americas. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And get back to me when you okay. <laughs> yeah, you d- you dig a four thousand foot hole, and then you tell me about water fountains. Exactly. Oh yeah, but yeah, it's true. I think there's that's a really good point too, where it's just like this this the system is just really difficult for both for everybody involved. You know what I mean? Where it's like I think also what you're pointing out too is like I understand that with rotations you meet so many different people. And with so many different personalities, backgrounds, interests. So um, 
how do you form meaningful relationships? You know, like, is that even possible? And if that's not possible, because I feel like the, that relationship that like you're talking about, the building of the trust and, and, and actually caring about how to improve, <clears throat> I think personally is like, I mean, I have no evidence, but just like, I feel like that is like a, a should be a foundation of, of how to make better doctors who will incentivize the right things. You know yeah. what I mean? But, but it is like, but it, if that's, if this is the nature, like where there's some, like everyone switches after three weeks or I am out of a different rotation every other week or every four weeks. Like, is that possible? Like, yeah. in, um, well, in my case, like when I attend on service, my, I have a, uh, giving evaluation is not my goal. Mm-hmm. I have zero interest in evaluating. Mm-hmm. Uh, my goal is to try to get people to think better. I yeah. mean, and, and, and that to me is like a tough thing. Uh, and so I, I take evaluation, I throw that aside, I could care <laughs> mm-hmm. less, but mm-hmm. like, I don't know, how can they, because I hope that like what I'm trying to tell them about how to think about this is, and I often feel as if it is from what they tell me different than what they're used to hearing. Yeah. 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 And since it's different to what they're used to hearing, then mm-hmm. I feel like I ha- I don't have the, I can't afford to evaluate them. That's not right. what my role is. My right. role is to try to get them to see it. And even if they reject what I'm telling, telling them, at least they can sort of see how I sort of frame yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, that was a great question. Oh, I said what I'd, I'd ask you at the end. Uh, what do you think? Oh. Step one, pass yeah. Um Well, I, I think it's a good step, a good first step. I was really excited, um, mostly because also in other, like, advocacy work, I haven't been involved in this, but I just, it's nice to see that I've, I know students who have been involved in just at least opening up the discussion. And I think realizing <clears> that, <throat> A, that organized efforts, even from the level of students, um, in addition with faculty, can be a really, can add to policy changes, super exciting. Um, just just to know that that exists, yeah, you know, you and to see that in something. my lifetime, yeah, in my lifetime, right, right you know. Um, and then I think just even even for the practical, logistical things of what it means. Well, first of all, I, this is really weird to admit, but I kind of really enjoyed step one <laughs> study time for in the beginning. Like, I really, I was like, oh, like, I, you know, and I, but I was, it's because I was not, I, maybe I should have been a little more worried, but like, I think I did, I did fine. I did well. And I was happy with my, very happy with my score. But like, what I mean to say is like, I was trying to not let the test or this, this feeling of anxiety get to me. And, yeah. and the one thing that I'll say by the end of it, I felt after I took the test and I did close, um, all my rotations or some of mine, I, I felt like, I felt sad because I was getting a little robotic at the end and I just, it didn't feel, this is like the farthest I had felt from connecting with people of wanting to learn about patients, you know what I mean? Like, and all that, all that curiosity, like I was, for me, the, the goal of going into step was to not lose that sense. Um, and like, I think even with that goal, it was still very hard to prioritize that obviously in this period where they're like, nothing else matters. And everyone was like clearing the roads for me. They're like, whatever you want to eat, like, yeah, uh, yeah, let's yeah. focus, you know, like, and everyone, like, I've never been in a situation where, like, everyone has enabled me to, like, be completely devoid of connection. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and like, I, I just think that's such an interesting, it was just an interesting period of my life. Um, okay, but, but even, even still, even till then, like, I, I, what I, what I appreciated about that period was that I, it was more that I had finished a goal and a milestone. But, but I think that, What's interesting is that all I could answer on rounds was all the step one, like all the first questions of every line of questioning. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, question, I was like, yeah. I could answer the step one question, what to do or what this patient had or not, not really. Um, what class of drugs is ciprofloxacin? Right. Oh, it's a fluoroquinolone. Yeah, oh, right, okay. Exactly. And when do we treat UTI? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. yeah. And so I just, it, it was, it was, 
um, this this idea of like seeing the rhythm. There's there is no substitute for like just seeing the rhythm of what mattered and like and just even being in a room of, of residents and like understanding their schedule. Yeah. You know what I mean? And what what how they also uh, the the camaraderie that I think is so apparent in residential life mm-hmm. um, that you know can may or may not exist on the student level if that makes sense. Um, where it's like, yeah, but that's, that's, I see that and I, now I know what they meant by like, okay, there is someone who could be on the brink of death or could just be here for like, uh, just because he was transferred and you don't know until you look at the records. You know right, what I mean? Like right. that's, that's the real, that's the real like question, you know what I yeah. mean? Of like, how do you, how do you whittle down this uncertainty? And so I guess for me, like I would say that step one is really, I just it, I don't think it brought the community that I guess people were hoping for in, in med school if that mm. makes sense when when there's external resources when there's other motivations and like why why come to class and learn when there's already like a third party yeah teaching you step teaching, one yeah, yeah. It's, it's really destroyed the curriculum right, yeah exactly so that's why it's like I think it would be nice to see what happens when it's like the it's classroom gone. is really there yeah. to learn from each other or to like build that sort of yeah, that's I a good know. point. Yeah. yeah, right. It's like uh, one of the strange medical education is that, like, it's secondary to step right, one prep. Right, right, yeah. And I'm just like, that That just, again, like these ideas of, like, you're saying this matters, but then this is a thing that matters so much because with a numeric score and it would decide your future so right. forth. So, like, when you make these, like, micro-calculations, what's going to win out, you know? Yeah, of course you're going to prioritize that. Right. Well, I'll tell you, the last thought, the how I felt after step one, mm-hmm. I felt uh, the lightness that comes only after you... Go to the restroom when you really have to go to the restroom. And, <laughs> and that's what I think of step one. Yeah. So, <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Jane Zhu. Jane is an assistant professor of medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. She's a practicing general internist and health policy researcher. She has appeared on a prior episode of this podcast, Episode one dot, I forget, but Kiana will have to have to look that up and tell us which episode it was. Um, and uh, she's back to discuss a new paper now out in JAMA, which is the rate at which physician medical groups are acquired by private equity by specialty. I think I reworded your title. Jane, it's so it's so good to have you here. That's close enough. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. So this is a very interesting paper, and I think... Um, Certainly on Twitter, Twitter lit up about it. People are people are very interested in this topic. Yeah, so I mean, I think um, it just goes to show that I think the level of interest just goes to show how little data there is on I this see. topic. Um, you know, we've known for years now that private equity, venture capital, um, there's been a lot of investment in the healthcare sector. It didn't start with physician medical groups. It's, you know, there's been hospitals that have been acquired. There's been nursing homes that have been acquired. And then in turn, hospitals and um, uh, other larger enti- entities are actually purchasing up physician medical groups. And there's consolidation all across, across the, the space. Yeah, industry in general. And so there's a lot of interest in this happening because um, it's a phenomenon that you know, has a lot of implications for care and quality of care in general, practice patterns, but there's very little that's been done because the data is just so limited. So um, we decided to look into this a little bit more. Okay. That's a, that's a great, that's a great topic to look into something that, you know, you really can shed light on. So let me, let me ask you first, um, when you talk about private equity and talk about venture capital, 
you're talking about what I should have done with my life, but you're all, <laughs> you're, all, <laughs> you're not the only one. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you're also talking about um, you're talking about people who are investors who are motivated um, primarily to maximize um, revenue. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, you know, with most private equity investments, um, you don't invest in something that there, where there's no money to be made. Um, there's clearly a financial benefit to buying up these physician medical uh, group practices. And what we know um, just from industry reports, anecdotal reports, is that these are, um, on the whole, fairly short-term purchases. So a private equity group will go in and uh, expect to keep a physician medical group for somewhere between three to seven years oh, really? on average um, and expect really high returns, uh, annual returns. I've seen reports of, you know, um, expectations of 20% over that time period, mm-hmm. um, which is really high. Um, and so the question that comes into play is when a private equity group then goes and, and invests in one of these um, physician medical groups, which presumably a physician group has been culling and developing over, you know, many, many years to Mm -hmm. establish clinical reputation, Mm -hmm. to establish the structures, Mm the quality of care, um, that their incentives are fundamentally um, misaligned. misaligned. I see. So that's interesting in two ways. One, that, uh, so these are investors chasing uh, what it sounds like is a a medium-term profit on the order of three to seven years. And and the groups that are being acquired are agreeing to be acquired, so they must be uh, incentivized to sell. Uh, so these probably are lucrative offers for the physicians in the groups. Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there's certainly um, financial benefits for both parties, and and if you think about kind of the wider patterns that are happening in healthcare in general, as I mentioned, consolidation is happening across the industry. Mm -hmm. And so a physician group might be thinking, well, if we're not going to be purchased by this private equity group, we may be purchased by a hospital down the street within the next year. And Mm so why not sell to the highest bidder? I see. Uh, But uh, I think one of the other issues that arises is that, um, you know, the practice partners that are selling these groups are tend to be, you know, at the end of, near the end of their careers or closer to the end of their careers, Mm -hmm. and they might have associates or other physicians that are younger that are coming into um, practice, um, joining these practices with an expectation of becoming partners Mm -hmm. and having that same career trajectory Mm -hmm. uh, then being pulled out from under them because the people who are making the decisions are are making partners. Yeah, they're making decisions potentially at the expense of the younger I see. That's interesting. And also at some level in your career, it might be to your incentive to sort of realize that your your partnership is coming to a near-term end, and you might as well extract whatever revenue you can from the practice at that point. Yeah, it's possible. And, you know, um, they've been working for many, many years. There's a payout in the end. Um, the There are a lot of potential benefits to having a private equity investor come in. Um, you know, there's certainly billing and Mm -hmm. administrative efficiencies that um, people can see. There's potentially, you know, um, great alignment with technology adoption. Um, They might be streamlining practice and Mm -hmm. making things more efficient from that standpoint. So, you know, there's certainly possible um, great benefits, which is why people are are engaging in these partnerships. Um, but what we, you know, I think what a lot of people are concerned about are the unattended consequences, which we don't know as much about. I see. So why don't we take um, take us through your paper? How how were you able to get data on this? I saw the word fuzzy matching. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all fuzzy. It's all fuzzy. It is, it's a very descript, uh, apt description. Um, so 
I think one of the things that have been has been really a challenge in terms of studying this phenomenon is really just data availability. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the data that's available right now is through kind of financial databases, which are privately owned. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of how they actually collect data is manually mm-hmm. um, and often through announcements of public transactions. Oh, wow. So that in and of itself, you can think of sure. will limit your data set because there's also lots of private transactions that are happening. And um, these firms are not legally obligated, mm-hmm. um, at least to my knowledge, to report this. Mm-hmm. So um, the data, even the data we used is limited in mm-hmm. terms of, um, you know, whether it captures the whole of what's been going on. I see. Um, the other thing is that, you know, this has been this has been a fairly new phenomenon. Um, so what we did was we, we found um, you know, about 355 practices that had been acquired over mm-hmm. a period of like 2013 um, to 2016, just in a three-year period. What we know from anecdotal and market reports is that that number has skyrocketed enormously in the two years since, or in the four years since mm-hmm. or whatnot. Um, and so, um, you know, it's hard to keep up with real time because this is a a, a rapidly advancing um, phenomenon um, that's happening. And so we don't have the data. The data is lagging, um, essentially. So what we did um, in our paper was we um, used a database called Levin Associates. And just like those other financial databases, they basically call market reports and um, public announcements of transactions um, and uh, and they validate those. Mm-hmm. And we use that and linked it to another data set called the SKNA data set, mm-hmm. which is um, a data set that includes information about practice characteristics mm-hmm. and um, provider characteristics. Um, and it has about 9 million physicians in that or, or and other providers in that database. So it's really quite comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we linked those to see if we could find who are the physicians that are being bought up in these practices right. um, and um, basically did a, a you know a pretty simple descriptive study mm-hmm. um, and so what we found was of about 18,000 group practices across the US um, you know there were these purchases that were happening on a yearly basis um, the majority of these purchases were in anesthesiology emergency medicine, mm-hmm multi-specialty practices. Mm -hmm. And then um, in the last year of the study, between 2015 and 2016, we saw a blip going up in some of the other specialty practices like cardiology and urology, ophthalmology, specialties that have potentially like (coughs) ancillary services that could be lucrative, like labs, imaging, procedures, things like that. So I guess it's worth (laughs) making the point that even though your data set is not comprehensive, um, one would not expect there to be any uh, interaction between um, what's being reported publicly and specialty. You know, if they're keeping, you know, two thirds of these secretive, it's not going to be preferentially in urology rather than anesthesiology. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not it's not necessarily um, an issue with missing data across, yeah. um, you know, certain specialties. Um, it, if anything, we're missing kind of smaller um, practice buy-ups. Right. Um, and often that's um, going to be more a challenge when you're um, looking at private equity, specifically because the way that private equity buyouts typically happen is that they'll buy out or they'll acquire a large platform practice. And those are the ones with like multiple sites, many, many doctors. Right. Uh, and then once they have that, then they'll start expanding the market reach. They might buy up some more smaller practices, things like that. So we're we're missing those smaller 
uh, practices there. But um, on the whole, um, you know, this is an estimate of these larger platform practices. And they capture that um, relatively better. I see. But it is interesting that, you know, that what is being bought up are anesthesiology practices, emergency medicine practices. Um, those were the two top uh, top acquired. And there's a bit of a theory that you have as to why it, why it's those practices and not other practices. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. I guess you could say it's a concept or a theory, and, and this is something that people have um, kind of put, put together. They've kind of connected. Um, you may your listeners may know about kind of surprise billing mm-hmm. and out of network billing controversies, mm-hmm. uh, whereby essentially um, you know people are going into the hospital or they're going into a provider and they think it's in network, but then for some reason, um, for reasons that they can't choose on their own, they get an out of network bill. And often those out of network bills are uh, more likely to happen with anesthesiologists, pathologists, radiologists, emergency medicine doctors mm-hmm. who um, whose model is to contract with hospitals. Um, and um, often there's no choice in terms of who you're going to get, even if the hospital's in network. And there's been a lot of researchers that have looked at that topic. So, um, you know, JAMA, JAMA IM, Health Affairs, all of these um, journals have recently published in the past year two years, some papers that are looking at descriptively how often this actually happens. Um, And so Zach Cooper from Yale and his group looked at um, a commercial insured database from like 2015 or something. And they found that um, in an in-network hospital for mm-hmm. these for these beneficiaries, um, in cases where there was an anesthesiologist involved, 12% of them involved an out-of-network bill, mm. um, even though the hospital itself was in-network. And then um, Karen Chabra and some folks at Michigan, I believe, um, released a recent paper in January of this year that looked at kind of elective surgeries that were happening in commercial populations. Elective too. Yeah, right, elective yeah. surgeries. Mm-hmm. So people knew they were in network. They right. were choosing this, uh, you know, this particular hospital for the surgery. Um, and one in five of those patients faced an out-of-network bill averaging about $2,000 oh, no. um, each. And so, um, you know, out-of-network billing has become a huge thing from a policy standpoint yeah. and from a research standpoint. And um, often they are, um, there's some, there's, there's some concern that, these are the specialties that are backed by private equity firms. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the biggest, uh, I think, stories that made the news about this was um, the fact that there were a number of bills in legislation in the House and Senate around addressing um, out-of-network billing. Mm -hmm. And um, we found out later that um, these large private equity-backed physician management firms had been infusing like all this dark money um, mm, to try to, to yeah to the tune of bills. like 28 million dollars to try to to try to kill these bills because um, for some of these practices the out of network billing is kind of a financial model mm-hmm. that's very lucrative and the reason you think about this is when you look at those specialties what do these specialties that are being acquired have in common one of those things is they tend to be the specialties for which out-of-network billing is uh, known and, and problematic and very costly. Yeah, I mean, it, they, uh, some of the top ones that we found in our study are consistent with the kind of the model with which they contract with hospitals. 
that facilitate, I mean, those models facilitate out-of-network billing because people don't have a choice necessarily in who they pick to be their emergency room physician, whereas they do for their primary care physician or their cardiologist or their oncologist, for example. Um, But that being said, like moving forward um, into, you know, 2018, 2019, industry reports are showing that there's private equity um, investment that's growing in other specialties, like Mm -hmm. I mentioned before, um, subspecialties, Mm -hmm. um, and even like behavioral health and, um, you know, substance use treatment, like it's, it's, it's kind of growing everywhere. I see. Um, and so our our um, paper was just really to get an understanding of the scope to which this is happening because there's really just no empirical evidence yeah. at all about this and the rate at which it's happening. Um, but then, but you know, it's the next step is is clear. I mean, fairly clear cut. Like we want to know, you know, what are the implications right. of this for. Um, quality of care, for practice stability over the long term, for physician behavior and um, practice patterns. All of these things are unknown and they really need to be studied because I don't see this as a trend that's going to dip um, anytime it, soon. I see. As long as it's lucrative, it's going to be continuing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. unless like with politics, political changes, political winds changing. That's true. We completely change the healthcare system. <laughs> but I think this is, as long as we're working in a market-based, you know, healthcare this system, is inevitable. this is, yeah, this is going to continue. My understanding is that um, at least the, so far as the out-of-network billing is a problem, there's just a number of legislative sort of solutions that are working its way through Congress. And mm-hmm. there, people are even optimistic that even in this climate, it'll be able to pass, you know, prior to the election. Yeah. Because uh, that's something that's just people are so outraged about. Yeah. it's um, it's um, It looks like this is one of the few topics that there's bipartisan support behind. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, the lobbying groups um, are fairly... Um, powerful in expressing their That's true. antithesis to this. But, um, you know, uh, there's there's a couple, the basic um, legislation, uh, there's a couple of proposals. Um, one is to allow arbitration, mm-hmm. um, which means that the insurers and the providers would have like some sort of third party that determines what sort of bill they would be able to um, charge yeah. to an out-of-network patient. Um, I think some of the concerns, I mean, and this is not entirely in my wheelhouse, but I think some of the concerns around that is that, um, you know, there are predictions that with arbitration, um, out-of-network providers would still get paid substantially more than in-network providers. Mm-hmm. And what are the consequences of that? Should that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other end of it, um, the the other type of legislation to address this out of network billing is really to um, benchmark the prices that are paid the the bills to some sort of median or some sort of bench you know some sort of number mm-hmm. um, either in a market a particular market so for example to benchmark it to Medicare prices or to benchmark it to the median in network provider right. prices and you can imagine there are there is from the physician's standpoint a lot of physicians aren't keen on that because um, it means that they would you know receive be, lower wages re- receive a lot lower um, in terms of their their income and then um, the private equity and the physician groups are also not keen on that. I so see. I don't have a strong opinion about like mm-hmm. what's the best way to solve this way problem, to solve this problem yeah. because every le- every policy has, um, you know, potentially benefits and pros and cons. Um, and there's probably some unintended consequences that we're not thinking about quite yet. Um, but um, do I think that this is a problem that needs to be addressed? Yes. Yeah, I think because of the, the stories that you keep hearing about. 
now let me ask you about the private equity angle. After three to seven years, when private equity has reaped the short-term profit, to whom do they sell these physician groups? It's a good question. I mean, I talked to some private equity folks um, when I was looking into this topic as well, and um, often they sell to other private equity groups or mm, other investment firms. Yeah. So this just this is something that continues on, or they'll sell to some other entity, um, you know, that takes over. I don't know how often it is that once a private equity group has acquired this practice, whether they sell back to, doctors. to the doctors. Right. I, I've, I haven't seen it, and I don't. I think it's probably too early, mm-hmm. too, because. Um, but I would imagine no, because yeah. the just the the general trends of consolidation that are happening across the country. So, um, but they yeah they just they keep selling it. And then what about um, we don't know what happens to physician incomes over this time? Like uh, the doctors who are part of the group, mm-hmm. over time, does their income? Uh, rise or fall? My guess is it falls on average because that's what private equity is extracting the money. But maybe perhaps the upside to the doctors is it's stabilized in some way. The the volatility of year-to-year income is somehow you know, mitigated by private equity. Or the idea is maybe private equity is willing to engage in practices the doctors themselves wouldn't sign on to, and thus income may grow a little bit because um, the doctors were not willing to do certain things that private equity says, you got to do it now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the answer to that um, either. But um, in general, you know, there's a initial... Um, windfall when the practice partners get, you know, acquired. Um, And then who suffers is the, you know, they're the associates that now work on salary, they're employees rather than becoming partners in a a private practice model. Um, And then it's hard to know because um, there may be increased efficiencies or the private equity um, investment may infuse some capital to allow the practice to expand more I and see. grow, you know, its market reach and patient volume. And maybe it would become more lucrative over time. Maybe it becomes less lucrative because you're on salaried and you're not, you know, eating what you kill, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to know. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's happening a lot. And I think as it happens and younger people, younger physicians are coming out of training and realizing that their, you know, uh, employer is thinking about this or are about to sign a sign on the, the right. dotted line right. will know a little bit more about the impacts on physicians themselves. I mean, I think what what's more concerning to me is um, what is the impact on on patients, um, patients mm-hmm. and on the type of care? Like, are we still going to be um, held to, you know, um, necessary care standards? Or is there going to be you know, uh, an underlying theme of profitability mm-hmm. driving a lot of healthcare decisions. Um, it's unc- it's unclear. I mean, there's been um, research that looks at so nursing home um, purchases have been happening for mm-hmm. a, a while now, yeah. and there's been a small body of research that looked at um, that's looked at what happens when a nursing home chain, for example, or a nursing home facility is purchased by private equity. Um, and the data on that, the findings for those studies are all kind of inconclusive. Mm-hmm. There's been a few studies that show that um, potentially nursing home staffing reduces. Um, it decreases after private equity um, comes in. Um, but then there's other studies that show that, no, well, this was just a general trend that was happening right. across the country anyway. Right. Right. Um, and there has not been evidence that quality of care has reduced necessarily um, in nursing homes that have been purchased by private equity versus those that have not. But again, that body of work is fairly limited mm-hmm. from what I've seen. And um, 
I suspect that again, data is a limitation. Yeah, hard to there. come by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and 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 the starting point of some of these nursing homes might not be terrific care to begin with. Right. So, exactly. Right, yeah. yeah. And so it's like, how far yeah. down can you how, how measure? Much more can, yeah, they've already <laughs> cut every sort of yeah. nickel and dime out of the system. Right. Exactly. And then let me ask you, like, just sort of as a general, I don't know if you'll know this, but like, um, you know. 30 years ago, the average doctor going into practice would go to work for probably a physician-owned group. Mm-hmm. And now it appears to be like almost nobody. I think in oncology, somebody told me that there's only one um, physician-owned oncology group in the entire, entire state I'm of I'm surprised Oregon. that there's even one. They're hanging on. Yeah. Bud Pierce and colleagues I, I mean, Salem. I'm surprised there's even one because I think in oncology in particular, they're so dependent on having facilities yeah. and, um, you know, diagnostic yeah. uh, ancillary services and um, access to surgeons and things like that. I, I can't imagine that in this day and age, oncology groups are surviving on their own unless they have like amazing contracts with neighbor hospitals, yeah, and, local, stuff, yeah. Local hospitals and, and things like that. And I think this is this is a group does have an effective monopoly on, you know, half a million people in this certain wow. geographic area. But yeah, everyone else has been acquired by predominantly U.S. oncology or different other sort yeah. of groups. Yeah. Or, or hospital systems hospital and systems, things yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So do we know about the average doctor probably works on sort of salary with some reimbursement based on productivity? Yeah. So I don't know the actual st- statistics, yeah. but I do know that it's a growing, it's a growing, it's a good growing trend, especially amongst younger doctors. Most doctors now are actually salaried hmm. employees, which I mean, I think may also change the way that um, younger doctors view medicine, you know, and practice medicine because they're, they're, I think, less exposed to the business end of things. Um, I don't know what's good or bad in the long run. Right. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that is... But we know we, we, we know we know burnout is sky high, or at yeah. least rhetoric on burnout is certainly yeah. sky high. And, yeah. and, and, and you do often hear stories about doctors who report that there are sort of perverse financial incentives within the organization um, that are brought down from on high. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the virtues of that physician-owned practices was the physicians, for better or worse, you know, got to set, set the rules. And we still hope, but, you know, we'll have to look to the data to see what it shows, that physicians would, at some degree, maybe not be motivated purely by profit maximization. And the worry is that these firms are not. They are purely motivated by profit maximization. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that that's a concern. <clears throat> I mean, the, there are certainly benefits to being salaried in that, like, you know, a small practice might then be worried about how people are going to be paying for, you know, their their care. Um, they might be worried about insurance coverage and select for certain patients that they know to be able to to cover um, their services. They may not be as efficient with with administrative tasks. Um, they may not be able to a- adapt certain technologies like you know electronic health records and mm-hmm. things like that. So there are some benefits to consolidation, I think, in general. But um, yeah, we definitely see uh, a decrease um, in the small physician-owned practices. In fact, when I was in, living in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, there was a family practice doctor who lived. He was a solo practitioner who lived uh, right um, below us, and he shuttered his doors really? um, during the time that we were there, just in a couple years. So, um, and he cited just the pressures, administrative pressures, billing pressures, um, being able to keep up with MACRA um, mm-hmm. and other kind of CMS changes yeah. over time. And I think that that sort of stuff is much harder when you're a small group practice or a solo practice. Um, and even the group practices that are surviving now, they tend to be pretty big. Yeah. They pre- tend to have lots of doctors. They have their own billing people, their own administration. They have CEOs. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones that are able to compete with, you know, hospital and other entity-owned mm-hmm. practices. You have to be able to do that now to compete. Otherwise, you'll get 
carved up. What's it, what are the next steps for you? Are you still doing research in this space? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, the, the, I think the the next questions are pretty clear cut to us. Um, there, I think what I would like to do is actually then um, start exploring some of the other financial databases and try to get as comprehensive a picture as we can. Mm-hmm. The problem is those are very expensive. Uh-huh. Um, so we're actually... Because uh, private equity is selling them to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's so, some, some financial company is selling, uh-huh. um, you you know, like Bloomberg and, you know, things like that. So uh, Thompson one. So there's a lot of these sort of um, these uh What are we talking about? Are talking databases. about $50,000, $100,000 more? Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. uh, it's about that. And so then if you want to look at all of them, it, it adds up. But uh, we're trying to get some data and then we want to start answering the questions of like what are the impacts of acquisitions on, you know, some of these downstream um, outcomes um, this is something the listeners may not stuff. may not know, but uh, getting getting good data very costly. Yeah, like Medicare data, especially you know with um, let's not even talk about hundred percent coverage. Let's talk about forty percent coverage Medicare yeah. data. Yeah. Very expensive. Yeah. Um, the more coverage it is, more expensive. Cost of drug data is expensive. Uh, data on purchase patterns is expensive. I mean, every every bit of data that you see in in the publication space, and then what you find is that groups. Research groups will invest in one set of data, and then they'll have like a mill where they just publish all the possible papers out of that set of data, yeah. trying to maximize. Yeah, I mean, it's revenue. funny. Before I went into research and like the research mm-hmm. track or the research world, you know, you used to think I used to think, oh well, research is really driven by like good questions and good ideas. No, yeah, you know, it's more driven by like what data is available, yeah. um, and you know wh- how you can get that data. And um, I think. You know, for fellows and trainees and stuff, there's still a lot of really good data out there that you can do that's publicly available. And um, those data sources like, you know, um, BRFSS and NAMCs, and I'm sure there's a lot in cancer, um, you know, or just being creative with how you review things. can can go a long way. So it's really it's a lot of it is data driven for sure. Yeah. And who and who is the purse strings to purchase the data? Right. But I do think that, you know, like um the one thing that I try to do in my research is like all the data that we build off of, I would say the, not all, but maybe 90% of the papers that I work on, um, we build the data set like with with manual labor, publicly yeah. available data, but like manual labor yeah. goes into it. And uh, it still might be cheaper than some of these data sets that cost, yeah. you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. to buy. And even those those data sets that cost a lot of money to buy, you still have to go back in and then validate them and of clean course. them up. And they can be mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I think this is such an interesting story. And I guess there's a lot to be coming here. But, you know, I think if you really want to understand healthcare policy and healthcare in general, uh, it is important to know how the money flows through the system. And what we're seeing right now are that groups interested in medium-term profits are acquiring certain physician specialty groups and not other physician specialty groups. And this isn't done at random. This is done for a reason. So there's likely something about the profitability of these firms in the short term. And one putative explanation, of course, is that they are firms that prey upon patients through uh, out-of-network billing and those sorts of things. And and then the shift that you're going to see is probably, you talked about dermatology, urology, ophthalmology, mm-hmm. the the traditionally lucrative road specialties, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to be acquired, which means that there's something they about- They already are being. They're yeah. being acquired, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. But that's the next sort of frontier. Yes, yeah. And that's telling us that there's something about those specialties and how they're sort of reorganizing that is increasing their- I guess, um, desirability in the short term. Yeah. I mean, and then, and then you know, um, I've been hearing a lot about behavioral health, as I mentioned, yeah. and substance use treatment. That's because of buprenorphine. And- yeah. I mean, there's like lots of, um, I think, 
holes in current policies that allow people to Subbox. um to really uh, make a profit out of certain things. So like I was hearing um, for those uh, who are interested in substance use treatment and um, uh, but I was hearing there's a lot of for-profit privately owned substance use treatment centers um, and they get paid, for example, for every single urine test that they buy by insurance, they can bill for every single urine test that they um, order. So mm-hmm. they order them like multiple times course, a day yeah, for yeah, certain patients yeah. when it's not medically necessary because there's money to be made. And so um, I, I think, you know, as I mentioned, I don't want to put put a negative stamp on all of this because there are certain benefits that um, private equity and other investments might bring to a physician practice. But, um, you know, going back and centering ourselves on what aligns with patient interests and what aligns with um, quality of care is really important as we think about some of these trends. And it's not just this in particular, but it's just, you know, money and healthcare. Um, there's a lot of unintended consequences and, uh, you know, um, lots of important reasons why we should be studying this stuff longitudinally um, yeah. and really robustly. That's a great example, this idea of like, substance abuse, because I think it shows you that, you know, like, what do you, what are the things you really care about when you're taking care of somebody with substance abuse? You want to, if you have like a hundred people in your panel that are substance abusers, you're caring for them. I guess you'd want to minimize their dependence on, um, uh, on drugs that could potentially be adulterated or have a risk of disease transmission. So minimize the use of sort of street drugs. You want to lower their risk of uh, overdosing on these drugs. Um, you want to minimize insofar as possible dependence on these substances. But that said, you know, if you can get somebody to sort of a stable maintenance medication that they can take and have a normal life, that's preferable to having somebody, you know, out on the street chasing some sort of street drug. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that we really value to like bring somebody back from um, uh, you know, back into society and be able to participate in daily life. Uh, that's what you want for these people. But measuring those things and financially incentivizing those things, very, very difficult. Uh, and so how is it easier to sort of reimburse and incentivize is just to do it based on short-term things, like how many people have clean urine and how many times you collect the urine and, and like very simple sort of intermediates that may not be neither here nor there. And the moment you start incentivizing those things, somebody who looks at how the money flows will quickly figure out that's what you do. And you just chase the numbers. And I think whether it's substance abuse or anything else in healthcare, you know, one of the principal problems we see over and over again is people are really good at gaming the metrics, especially when they know those metrics are tied to money. And they're very difficult and they have a very, you know, it's very hard to think about what really matters and what does it actually take to get there. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that um, general sentiment. Um, There's there's problems with quality metrics in general and what we decide to, to measure um, and then as we move more into value-based payment and other things to try to address, um, you know, some of the tensions with profitability and, and incentives in healthcare, um, there's then a new set of, um, you know, incentives and, and unintended consequences that are introduced, um, you know, um, with p- potentially self-selecting certain types of patients or, um, uh, you know, playing to the metrics mm-hmm. or delivering less care mm-hmm. um you know there's there's a lot i mean, i think it's just kind of human nature in, in that there's always somebody who will be looking to see you know to cut the to, corner to yeah to find shortcuts yeah. and part of that is you know the fact that we just don't have great measures to get to where we really to get at what we really want to get at um and systems are imperfect in general so 
So the paper is entitled, now I'm going to say it right, Private Equity Acquisitions of Physician Medical Groups Across Specialties, 2013 to 2016, and it appeared in the February 18th issue of JAMA. So readers can find it there. So thanks, Jane, for coming on the podcast and taking us through this very interesting paper. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.